<laughs> you know, you know, editing actual like audio of that theme song. Wait, that's not us. I thought that was our singing. We were just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also just auto tune us a bit. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Radio More Park, the podcast where we recount, rate, review, and ramble about Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. This week, we'll be talking about Teeth of Time. This week, I'm Colm, and this week, I'm joined by... Steve himself, and it is a pleasure to talk to you all again. Hope you're doing very well this week. So, yeah. sorry? Oh, it's, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a good talk to everyone. We, uh, since we're... we're back on the horse now after our long hiatus we're hoping to keep the schedule of one a month which um isn't as, as frequent as we have been in the past but should be pretty manageable like at least it'll be regular and you you can know you'll get your uh, your monthly helping of radio more park rather than you know wondering uh whether it'll be this week two weeks three weeks or whatever uh, and you'll have to bear in mind, of course, that this is, you know, myself and Colin's time to catch up on our lives and all that sort of thing as well. So, you know, it's a nice opportunity for us to kind of have a little catch up. But yeah, of yeah. course, it is good that we are getting back on the horse because I don't know about you, but this is this is a very nostalgic and very um, for me, it, it kind of feels a little bit like, you know, coming back home for a little bit, you know, just reading a book and getting to chat to someone about it, like in a very... In a very Irish way. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. In a very oh. Irish way. He's well, a mad old fella, that death chap, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it would happen more regularly, um, but, you know, we're both very boring people, so we don't often have reason to catch up and tell, tell ourselves about, tell each other about anything interesting we've done, you know? That's true. <laughs> very true. No, it's, it, it is. It's, it's uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's really nice to t- talk to you again and, and talk about this um almost makes me forget you're on the other side of the world and in a different time zone and in a, you know, savage land that's probably never even heard of a breakfast roll. <laughs> oh, God, it's true. Yeah, yeah. We have sushi rolls. That's pretty much it, which some people do eat for breakfast, but we won't even go into that. Yeah. So this week we are talking about Thief of Time. Uh, so let's try and recount the summary as best we can here, shall we? Okay. Um, so, if I remember right, we are seeing the return of the auditors, arch nemeses of Death himself. And yeah, and, and the only, probably the only real recurring antagonist into this world, really, aren't they? Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who comes back again. Um, yeah, I think they are the only ones. Well, other than maybe the things from the dungeon I mentioned in the early, uh, the early I'm books. Not- I'm not sure if they really count. I mean, they're well. I mean, I was going to say they're so formless, but so are the aud- auditors themselves. So yeah, I guess you could say maybe the auditors are the dungeon dimension creatures, like but just advanced more. <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose that what, what this this book kind of implies that when there's a a bit, so we're already losing track of ourselves. <laughs> we're meant to be forgetting the plot. <laughs> but there's let, a, let's go to the plot. And we'll, we'll put a pin in that and come back to it okay. again. So the auditors are trying to make a clock. Uh, yeah, crystal we, we, clock. We open by basically death discovering that the auditors are up to no good again, and we don't exactly know what they're doing. But he he goes off to stop them, and what mm. what it turns out they're doing is they're trying to make a like a glass clock that will stop time. Um, and apparently, this was we we find out over the course of the book that this was done once before by a mad scientist in Uberwald, and it completely shattered time. 
So mm-hmm. the act of time was then rebuilt, and the act of the making the glass clock was almost a race from time, but it sort of filtered through to like the collective consciousness of the disc in different ways. Like in some places, it's fairy story, and in others, it's it's history. I think they make some comment later mm-hmm. about it being. 200 years ago in some places and 500 years ago in another yeah, um, to the people it was last week or whatever it doesn't really matter was the point that yeah. they were making but and, the auditors uh, have engaged uh, this sort of savant at the clockmakers guild in Ankh-Morpork called Jeremy Clockson which is a terrible <laughs> fun I love um, that it's terrible uh, so bad um, but yes dopey doing- top gear presenter Jeremy Clarkson <laughs> <laughs> In doing that, they bring. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, not. Jer- oh, yeah. So they're doing that with uh, Jeremy Clarkson. And meanwhile, while that is happening, uh, the history monks, the monks of history, the history monks, who are, I think, uh, I think they're supposed to be like Shaolin or Tao Taoism monks, or I'm not really sure. But um, they have taken in a young apprentice by the name of Lobsang Lud, who is proving to be a little problematic because he keeps stealing things, but they can't catch him stealing things. Mm-hmm. He's just one of those typical prodigy with like uh, not being challenged types. So they put him under the care of one Lutzi, who is kind of represented as, um, you know, uh, God, how would you describe him? Uh, sort of a Bruce Lee, who a lethargic Bruce Lee, maybe. <laughs> He's sort of like a, a, a kind of sarcastic Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, that's figure. right. We've we seen him once before in, in Small Gods when he helped uh, Brutta overcome some of his doubts. And it's it t- that book touches on the history monks and it's kind of implied that he nudged history in a different direction that Brutta was originally meant to die as a martyr. Mm. Uh, and this would result in long um, religious wars. And instead he he helped him uh, overcome things and live. But he's sort of like a like a legendary figure in the among the history monks, but he's also one that a lot of them are both in awe of and dislike. So <laughs> they figure by putting him together with this smart aleck prodigy, one or both of them will, you know, drive the other to despair, basically. And at least they'll have like one or possibly both problems off their hands. Yeah. And while they're, while this is happening, there's a lot of very fun faffing about with um Lobsang and Lutzi, basically like the dynamic between the master and the pupil, how that progresses. But while that's happening, they become aware of the plot or the ploy that the auditors have come up with that they're trying to make the clock again. And so yeah, there, there's a what is it the the mandala the this big um, center of swirling sands in the, mm. the history monks monastery that goes haywire. Um, and then the, the procrastinators, the machines they use to regulate the flow of time. I love that. that they also the procrastinators. That is such a wonderful, wonderful little um, thing to have in this book. But yeah, well, this this book's uh, quote, or this book's title comes from a quote from oh, I can't remember who it is, some eighteenth-century poet saying, "Procrastination is the thief of time." Ah. But uh, <laughs> Oscar Wilde also riffed on it and said, "Punctuality is the thief of time." <laughs> like you know, basically meaning like you're showing up on time to these. Yeah, boring events that you uh, have a duty to be at when you'd be better off enjoying yourself somewhere else. Wow. And it's almost as if, like, both uh, the title could imply, apply to both quotes because Jeremy is certainly someone who would think of procrastination as the time. We have that um, 
bit later that implies like he savagely beat up this guy for letting his watch run too fast. Oh, yeah. But Lobsang is someone who very much thinks punctuality is a thief of time because he seems so lazy and laid back, but he just gets, uh, you know, everything done and, and enjoys himself despite it. But but anyway, they, the procrastinators go haywire. Lobsang fixes it without really knowing what he's doing. And um, this sort of arouses Lutzi's suspicions that there's more to him than meets the eye. And all the monasteries in a tizzy, and the abbot, who at this point is in like the body of a baby he's reincarnated into. Mm. Doesn't uh, get the hang said, of circular reincarnation, I believe is the yeah. line, which is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um. So he sends uh, a load of monks off to uh, Uberwald to, you know, in the... Uh, seemingly thinking that the glass clock is going to be built there again. At the behest of Lutzi, if I remember right. Yeah, well, he specifically forbids Lutzi from going to Uberwald, and Lutzi then goes to Ankh-Morpork, and it's sort of implied that the abbot knows it's not really going, it's not really happening in Uberwald, and it probably is Ankh-Morpork, but he's kind of, for the rest of the monks and their hierarchy who dislike and are suspicious of Lutzi, he's kind of making a show of shoving him off to one side when actually he's kind of unofficially tasking him with the important job. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so all, all this death, death then goes to Susan, to, who is now a school teacher. Yes. To um, warn her about what's going on and sort of task her with doing it. As in Hogfather, she's sort of reluctant to fight death's battles, but, you know, ultimately her sense of uh, duty and her kind of... Um, uh, no nonsense attitude towards getting things done means she just finds herself throwing herself into it nonetheless. That's right, yeah. And uh, so she starts um, searching for. Oh, uh, Death suggests that the midwife. The, that, so he, uh, Death tells Susan that time had a child. And we get a kind of snippet of like the actual birthing process at the start, which includes. Uh, three versions of Nanny Og, which is great. Yeah. Uh, when she just started, when she's kind of midway through and something very, very recent. And um, so Death tells her that he should find the midwife. So Susan does that. Um, she finds Nanny Og and she tells her some information about the child. And then Susan goes to Ankh-Morpork to find him, uh, implying that it's going to be Jeremy, that Jeremy's the child in question. Mm-hmm. And when she gets there, she finds the auditors, many of them have taken on the form of humans because they use one human, uh, Lejean Mirian, I believe it is. Miria Lejean. Miria Lejean, that was it, which is a wonderful play on words we'll come back to. But um, so, yes, so she became a human or kind of has a human encasing to kind of entice Jeremy Clarkson to make the clock. But she starts experiencing human emotions and uh, general human functionality, and it's implied that she's enjoying it. So some other auditors start taking on some human forms to kind of be her supervisor, and that kind of results in a lot of chaos. All the auditors become human. They want to. They have individuality. They have uh, preferences. They have private thought processes, which just causes absolute chaos for the auditors mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, also, uh, uh, Miria has um, 
equipped Jeremy with an Igor to help him yes. with the construction process of the clock. But then as, uh, it's it's implied that, as you said, she's gaining human feelings and enjoying it. So she's actually subtly sabotaging the construction of the clock every time she comes to visit. Mm. And Igor grows suspicious of this, even though he's, he's sort of reluctant uh, and anxious about building the, the clock anyway, but he's also suspicious of her motives. So he follows her around and seems to begin to piece together that she's not quite human. Um, but uh, I think at, at this point then, Susan ends up meeting with Nanny Og, who uh, tells her that um, when time was giving birth to her son, she split into two moments. Mm. So there were actually two babies, but they're not twins. They're the same person split a moment apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they left them both in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. That's right. And while all this is happening, it should be said that Death is going around trying to round up the four horsemen. because Trying it, to put the band back together. Exactly. Because it's said that when time stops, the world will end. And tradition dictates that when the world ends, the four horsemen will ride out. So Death is going around at this point trying to find the four horsemen. But while this happens, I think... Uh, so the clock... Eventually, they don't manage to stop the clock. So the clock is made... And time stops. But luckily, because uh, Susan can move within uh, frozen time, she isn't affected by it. And because Lutzi is... uh, So because Lobsang has a procrastinator on his back, he isn't affected by it, so he can move through time. And finally, Lutzi isn't affected by it because he is saved by Ronnie Soak, a very punctual milkman in Ankh-Mor Pork, who is later revealed... To be Chaos, the fifth horseman, the horseman who left before they were famous. <laughs> um, which I think you know the Beatles better than I do. That's Pete Best they're referring to, is it? Or yeah, yeah. Although it's sort of it's it's um, like the Beatles in their when they became the Beatles properly. Well, they were a five-person band, but like Pete Best is the one they left bef- before they got famous. In the sense of like he like he left like literally just before they recorded mm. their their first records. Actually, at the behest of George Martin, their producer, and they got Ringo Starr instead. Mm. Um, but when he was in it, they were a four-person band, and like they were a five-person band in uh, Hamburg. So, uh-huh. in, in terms of it's like Beatles parallels, Ronnie Soak's more of a mashup between Pete Best, who left just before they got famous. And Stuart Sutcliffe, who was like the fifth person who after he left, they only ever had four. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, we, we'll come back to that in a minute, but I know you'll probably know more about this. I was looking, I was trying to research a little bit about that. I assumed it was Pete Best, but um, a lot of people say there's a bunch of people who could be the fifth Beatle, but yeah. apparently Ronnie Soak embodies characteristics of quite a lot of them. So we'll, we'll let you come back to that in a minute. You're going to know a lot more about that than I will, obviously. But um, anyway, so while this is happening... Um, Ronnie Soak, a.k.a. Chaos, has found uh, Lucy, and Lucy tempts him into riding... Is it... He tempts him into riding out again? Or... Yeah. Yeah, he basically sort of uh, needles him, you know, about his uh, abilities to, you know, go out and into the world and how unimportant Chaos is in the ordered world they live in now. Mm. And this eventually gets to him. And uh, it, it should be said, when Death is trying to round to get the band back together initially, he's not met with very much success. Mm. You know, Pestilence, war is sort of henpecked. Um, 
by his wife and it doesn't seem to want to go out. Uh, is it like pestilence or... Pestilence is afraid to go out and famine just basically... He he isn't interested. He's too good for it. It's implied at the time. Yeah, he says like, oh, there's not going to be any famine involved with, yeah. with time stopping. But um, they manage to get together, and it turns out rather than just simply riding out, the band gets together to attack the auditors. Yeah, the the detail in the the book is that they they're supposed to ride out, but it doesn't say against who they're supposed to ride mm. out. So they yeah they go out and they attack the auditors. And while this is going on, as time has stopped, Susan and Lobsang are going around trying to, you know, figure out a way to uh, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. <laughs> um, and Susan, at one point, like points out to Lobsang that the procrastinator on his back has stopped, but he's still able to move in the timeless world, which is kind of pointing us all towards what we begin to figure out, and that he's the uh, child of time mm. they end up sneaking into an art gallery and they discover that someone has confused a lot of the auditors in human forms by putting contradictory signs up like ignore this sign by order and <laughs> keep left on a uh, an arrow pointing right do not feed the elephants uh, yeah. <laughs> great one uh, um, and they discover this is uh, Lady Lejeune who um has sort of gone rogue and she has Jeremy who fainted after the clock uh, exploded and when he and Lobsang meet up they discover their Susan tells them they're one uh, actually one person and when Jeremy goes to or when Lobsang goes to meet Jeremy they combine into one being and ascend to a sort of astral plane yes yeah and in doing that they uh Jeremy slash uh, Lobsang sort of become the Jiminy Cricket to Susan's Pinocchio and like they're just kind of directing <laughs> her the whole way. So he directs her to get to the clock and in doing that he manages to meet his mother and his father. His father uh, being Wen, the eternally surprised, who is basically the reason the history monks exist, which is very apt. And once they do that, uh, Lobsang figures out how to destroy the clock if I remember rightly isn't it yes he yeah he reaches for the bit of it that's outside the, the, uni the universe and um, breaks it I think he breaks it yeah mm. yeah and then the uh, you kind of have a lot of um, rounding up the, the loose ends there like the um, Lady Lejeune uh, ends up killing herself because she feels she can't live as a human because she's insane yeah. and she kills herself by um, jumping into like a giant vat of chocolate death by chocolate uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lovely bit here where, where chaos is trying to explain to death that like the universe is so big that anything that theoretically could exist must exist somewhere mm. And, uh, and he says, like, it's a mathematical thing. And Death says, oh, maths, I never got further than subtraction, really. <laughs> <laughs> Great moment. <laughs> and so while that's happening, um, so, yeah, uh, Susan goes, I mean, well, I'm trying to think, all the, like, rounding up all the characters. Love, Love Sign goes, goes back to... Uh, the history monks. Yeah. And, and at the start, he, he met Lucy in the garden of five surprises, and he found what four of them were. Mm. Um, but he uh, he was trying to find out what the fifth one would be, and Lucy uh, shows him, and it's a, it's something like really deliberately anticlimactic. It's just him saying "boo," or where, where he takes out a mask that he wears and just says like "boo," and initially, mm -hmm. uh, love signs just like "ha ha ha." So it's all a big joke, but then uh, Lucy does 
the kind of what what I think we all expected him to do and shows that he's actually a master of his craft and has him pinned to the floor by using uh, deja vu. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, they, they kind of they formally fight, don't they? Like they, they go to this this chamber yes. um, and everyone's watching. But I can't remember why why are they doing that? Is it like that? They need to have an it, audience. It, it needs to be observed, otherwise it'll never have happened. Remember that thing? Yeah, yeah. But 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 why are they fighting? Like, is it that he'll only tell him the surprise if he beats him? Or uh, so I think the idea was that. Um, it's the idea that the student can, if he defeats the master, then the master has nothing else to teach him. So this is the only thing that Lobsang doesn't know from Lutzi. So he has to challenge him in order to, you know, become the master, if you know what I mean. Well, not become a master as opposed to their master. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they go and oh, yeah. Lutzi has him pinned, essentially, in front of an audience and uh, so as as a uh, as a wrestling fan, I was trying to figure out in my head like what this looks like. Like it, 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 it's, I, I doubt Terry Pratchett thought of the biomechanics of it, but when he starts describing like the different parts of his body that are in pain, I'm like, okay, he's got him in some kind of submission hold, like surfboard maybe. Or um, I, I would be very curious to see if there's any fan art anywhere of what that's that bit has meant to look like um, when he has it. I mean, if the universe is big enough to, you know, contain everything, I'm sure it exists somewhere, you know? <laughs> and then after that, um, I believe Lobsang, because... Is it because they recognize him as time itself that they try to award him the, you know, the title of a master monk or something? Yeah, yeah, they all know he's time, and uh, uh, Lutzi's kind of pleased that his legend has been added to by, by defeating the uh, personification of time. That's right. So yeah, they try and award him the title, and he refuses, and he accepts only the title of Sweeper, which is Lutzi's title, which are like the essentially the cleaners or the kind of underlings mm-hmm. um, of the of the dojo. Yeah, yeah, which is good. And so after that happens, we cut to he does give one um, the the mountain the the monks are uh, where their monastery is based is sort of frozen in one perfect moment in time by Wendy eternally surprised yes where the the cherry blossoms what is it like the cherry the, blossoms the cher- are always they're, they're blooming, always but they never get they, yeah they never get to the point of actually uh, giving fruit to any cherries yeah so time and, gives him the gift of actually uh, making the fruit bloom so that they can they can have they have cherries in the trees, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. Lucy remarks kind of wistfully early on that, like, oh, it would be really nice to have cherries just once. Yeah, and yeah. See time flow here. And yeah, Love Sang does that. So then, then we, as I said, we cut to Susan, who's back in her classroom. Mm. And then um, after that, uh, so there's a moment where basically she's teaching her class and she goes into the stationery cupboard to sneak a chocolate for herself because all the fighting <laughs> with chocolate has obviously made her a little bit hungry. Uh, and she gets, even though it's a nougat chocolate, which she hates, she goes into the stationery cupboard and says, I'm just going to sneak in here, have my chocolate. And then suddenly, Lobsang shows up and it's described as a perfect moment in time. And that's the end, which is... Very good ending, which we'll we'll leave that at. So, so that is the plot of Thief of Time, and I think I'm going to open with the same question I ask of every novel column. What did you think of the novel? Um, this is a tricky one for me. For one, I actually end up finishing it earlier than I expected. When I, I, we were talking before we went on air, I was over in the Isle of Man. Um, was it two two and a bit weeks ago now for a drama festival? And just with the flight over and the morning before we had to perform, I just had a lot of free time in my hands and ended up kind of feeding through it. So 
a lot of this is a little hazier in my head than it mm. than it normally would be. Okay. But um, I, this this is a very different kind of Discworld book in a lot of ways than than many of the recent ones we've read. Um, it's it's a lot more self consciously epic. Like yes. he's definitely riffing on action films and and martial arts films. Like The Matrix gets a lot of nods through. Mm. Um, and in some ways, it almost feels like a throwback in those ways to the, the early Discworld books where the stakes were always massive. It was, you know, the end of the world, the things from the dungeon I mentioned are going to yeah. come and destroy everything. And mm-hmm. it's all on the line, um, but done in a way that's much more polished um, and isn't, I suppose, tied down to the sort of uh, fantasy sword and sorcery parodies that he and um, his readership seem to regard as like the sort of the point of the Discworld early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very different. And it, like, there's a lot I like about that, but there's little bits um, I'm not sure of either. Um, one thing that uh, I, I kind of, I wasn't mad about throughout is that like, I feel like the, the Lobsang, Lucy relate teacher-student relationship is a sort of similar conflict to what we see with Granny and McGrath. Mm. Um and, and to a certain extent, other teacher-student relationships like, like Vimes and any of the junior watchmen, particularly, say, like someone like Angua, who in Men at Arms, you see is like kind of more cynical of Vimes than, mm. than a carrot would be. But particularly Granny and McGrath, because we see them uh, together, uh, you know, as, as a teacher-student pair a lot more. And I'm not sure it works quite as well as that one. Mm. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Like, I think, for one, is... Because we have a better idea of like like the, the conflict is is is, this, is very similar in that both McGrath and Lobsang kind of like are wondering why these teachers figures they have who are sort of lauded by a lot of people as you know particularly powerful as particularly powerful practitioners of an order whether it be witchcraft or uh, history monks mm. that are in themselves particularly powerful and they are wondering. Why don't we, you know you and we in general use these powers more explicitly and more usefully and more directly? And I feel like we we get a better idea, you know, in 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 the, in the witch books, particularly in something like uh, Witches Abroad, where we really see this this conflict play out of why Granny doesn't use her powers more directly. Mm. Like we have Lilith as a direct contrast to that. We also have like. Granny has a much more ambiguous reputation where like everyone in Lankra sort of has a lot of respect and awe for her, but they also regard her as a grumpy old woman who's, you know, kind of dangerous and, um, you know, might end up, uh, I suppose, going off the, the deep end. Like, again, that's, that's teased a lot with, like, uh, her and Lilith and, you know, which one, one of them is the good one and one of them is the bad one and so on. Um, and also the, the narration itself sort of, like, undercuts granny you know throughout like there's that great bit about uh i can't remember she makes some like silly blinkered comment about a foreign country she's never been to and it just says said granny weatherwax international diplomat or something like that <laughs> so we like as readers we can kind of see both like granny's point of view and mcgrath's you know yeah we can like understand mcgrath's frustration but we can also like get inklings of why granny doesn't use their powers as much whereas like I feel this is less satisfying because for one we don't really have any idea why Lucy doesn't use the you know his kind of like time stopping powers more directly and Lucy it's it's like his 
I suppose his uh, legendary reputation among the history monks, I think it's like laddered on a bit too generously early on. You know, yeah. like we have that nice little bit where the two, I can't remember who the, the two other monks who are high up, who, who are discussing are sort of, the lobster's yeah. apprenticeship basically yeah yeah and, and and they're sort of like unlike the abbot who seems to kind of um have more perspective and understand the usefulness of Lucy despite his unorthodox methods they, they don't like him and they don't like lobsang either and like i think that's a nice way where there are these two characters that we get the sense that we're really not meant to like mm. you know even though we're, we can kind of understand their frustration and putting up a lobsang but them talking about Lucy in these terms where they clearly don't like him but they see him as formidable mm. like that's a nice way for us as readers to be prepared as oh like I wonder I wonder what this guy is going to be like but then I feel like early on when they're in the monastery just every other line or interaction with him is someone kind of heaping praise on him or talking about like how legendary he is you know mm. and a lot of those bits in isolation are really fun like the bit when he goes into the dojo and the uh, the younger monk doesn't recognize him. It's like challenges him, and the the master of the dojo says, "Do you not want to know the name of the man you're about to kill?" And the younger monk goes, "Why should I know the name of a sweeper?" And he says, "No, I wasn't talking to you." Yeah. Like that's really cool. But it's also I feel like it's about like the third or fourth moment we have early on that is trying to hammer home. Lucy is really really cool. So on the one hand, we have like Lobsang has this seemingly very genuine uh, issue that we never get an answer to of like well you know why do you just ramble around sprouting off these little you know uh, codology witticisms and cheeky remarks when you could be like you know using this this like chrono twisting kung fu techniques <laughs> to do things we, we don't really get an answer to why this do that. But on the other hand, also, we have the narration telling us that, like, Lutzi's so legendary and so uh, formidable. And, that, you know, we can definitely kind of expect that he's going to get something done and solve the problem here. That Lobsang seems like a whiner for not, you know, not just towing the line and, and trusting to the uh, amazing reputation of this teacher he's been saddled with yeah um i actually i it's been a long time since i've read this book and i forgot the ending and i was there was a brief moment where i was really hoping something would happen so basically you know how there's the moment where lobsang and lutzi are attacked by i think it's by bandits or um, mm-hmm. yeah and, and basically what happens is Lucy goes to challenge them, says, do you know rule one, which is mentioned several times in the book, which is always be wary of old men with sweeping brushes or something like that, isn't it? So that, that's like the key thing. And when Lucy says that to the, them, he says, like, do you know rule one? And when they say, no, we don't know it, is it don't be a nosy bastard or something like that? And like Lucy looks really panicked for a second. It's like, oh, you don't know rule one? And because I'd forgotten the ending... I had it in my head as like, oh, wait, is Lucy like legitimately just like a guy who happens to get around things by talking? Like he legitimately has no martial arts ability and he just kind of gets around by being kind of good with time and that's it. Like, but yeah, no, it does. It's something I'm a little disappointed by that it takes what I think is a very easy route at the end. It's like, surprise, he actually is a Kung Fu master. I'm like, I would have liked it better if he just happened to be faking it the whole time like if he was a bit of a con artist I think that would have made mm-hmm. a much more satisfying way to round out that character um, I remember that, oh, sorry go ahead oh that that real one business really annoyed me throughout as well like it's it, it's like it's as if it's meant to be a, 
you know, a, a riff on something. Like, like, what's it referring to? Rule one of what set of rules? Why have rules at all? Like, what? You know, I, I get that it's sort of a, in a metatextual sense, it's a sort of um, reference to all these, you know, kung fu films and so mm. on that would have these like, yeah, set of rules by which to just you know, teacher kind of slowly unveils to the student of how they can, you know, balance mind and body and so on. Um, but like in the text itself. When he says that to people, it's like rule one of what? Like I'm of of, of this monastery. Is there? I, I didn't see a notice when I came in. Mm. What we're in Angkor Park? Rule one of what? Like should, should I get should I get the watch? Yeah. Is someone breaking the law? <laughs> you know, it's it, it just like annoys me. It's like it's it's kind of like this unmoored reference. You know, that doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That d- doesn't relate to anything. It's as if um, it's it's sort of like. Remember when we done men at arms? I think yeah, I think it was men at arms. And we were complaining that some of the like references to cop films don't really fit the moment there. Like, you know, the, the kind of connection between what's being referenced and the way it's being used in the text sort of breaks down. Yeah, like I the, They call me Mr. Vimes and I'm too short for that shit. It, it feels like, a, a, for me, a more egregious version of that, you know. Yeah. Like, those were just li- little moments in Men in Arms that sort of made you, you know, stop and raise your eyebrow and think, what? You know, well, not, not sure what he's. You know, yeah. I feel like this reference hasn't landed. Whereas this, it's it's used so heavily throughout as part of Lucy's legend, and it just, I don't know. For me, I, I, I didn't understand why. Like any, everyone's reaction to it wasn't just, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know? well, we had one person doing that, but um, I remember. So I remember when I was coming up to this book. I know two people other than yourself who have read Terry Pratchett and both of them say that Thief of Time is one of their favourite Terry Pratchett books and I remember when I read it I wasn't that impressed and I was very intrigued to come back to it and think okay I'm going to be looking at this with a fresh set of eyes like maybe I'll see like what the big deal was but I think I'm happy to say I think happy is the word I'm going to use I think I'm happy to say that my first impression was fairly on the money like I mean I do respect there's a lot of things that Thief of Time does and does very well but this is not I wouldn't hold this in very high regard in the grand spectrum of Terry Pratchett novels I don't think it's very very high up there like it does something it has very uh, high aspirations because whereas all the other uh, books they've all tackled you know a subject or a theme and this, I swear, in the most broadest sense, I feel like the theme that this is tackling is philosophy, which is huge. That is a massive spectrum of things to try and take on in one novel. But I don't think it does it very well. Like, it kind of plays around in the field of philosophy, but it doesn't really say anything that interesting about it. And while the plot itself is very interesting, I don't think the characters are. I definitely agree. I don't think... In my personal opinion, and please shoot back at me if you disagree very strongly, I don't think Lutzi is a very good character. I don't think he's well-developed, and I think he's just an amalgamation of other characteristics that other char- more interesting characters have had and kind of meshed together. I was more thinking of Lutzi... I think you're right that the relationship between Magrat and Granny Weatherwax and Lobsang and uh, Lutzi has a certain parallel, but... Lucy has more of the mannerisms of Nanny Og than Granny Weatherwax. Like, he's very, you know, sarcastic, cheerful, kind of, you know... Very earthy and, uh, like, almost, you know, crude. When, when he... Like, all the sayings he's quoting off... Um, what's his name? What's her name? The old oh, woman uh, he lived with? Mrs. Cosmo... Mrs. Cosmo... Cosmo... 
Cosmopolis. Cosmopolis. Cos- Cos- Cosmopolis, yeah. Um, yeah, they seem kind of like that like attitude of like Nanny Og confronting the uh, strange and the dangerous, which is kind of like, you know, um, the no-nonsense uh, kind of like, you know, down-to-earth, cheery irreverence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but there's something of like, like Nanny Og feels so... Um, Genuine, like like you've. Uh, I, I think I described uh, described her to you once on, the, uh, on this as like she feels to me like like an amalgamation of a lot of my aunties on my like from my mad side of the family, probably including my mad to an extent. Um, whereas like like Lucy as just you know Buddhist monk from a kung fu film, like what what he is an amalgamation out of is an amalgamation of like fictional uh, stereotypical roles so you know it, it comes across as like when when you combine all of those to make a character it comes across as a lot thinner than when you're, when you're combining a lot of kind of archetypes of of real people mm. you you would you know has, meet in your everyday life he has one moment where he almost redeems himself but he falters in it and that is um when we discover that Lucy had tried to stop the clock the first time and he almost made it, but he didn't quite make it. And he reveals this to Lobsang. And I thought, oh, yes, here's some meat on this character is like in, within this character. We can really get our teeth into this. But it's dismissed so early on. It's just kind of like he's just, OK, but we got to stop it now. So let's keep going. And then he just reverts back into, you know, very stereotypical um, like hero mode almost, which like, I mean, it's good that he's not like a perfect hero. Like, it's nice that. He's the one who gets caught up by Ronnie Soak, so he has to kind of work his way around this. And he's not exactly pivotal to the plot towards the end. He's just kind of there, which I sort of like, but it also gets me thinking, well, what's really the point of you here, you know? Um, Yeah, so personally, in my opinion, I don't think he's that good. And I actually have to say, I sort of feel the same way about Lobsang. He's He's a very nothing character i don't think he has any worthy characteristics whatsoever like nothing about him i find that interesting the most of the new characters i thought jeremy Clarkson was the most interesting one and we don't get any time really to see him like all the time we see him is basically from igor's perspective we mm-hmm. get one brief like one or two paragraphs at the start where it's from his perspective but as soon as igor is introduced everything takes place from igor's perspective and he's looking at jeremy Clarkson from you know, the outside. So we, we're looking at him from the third person. He could be a really, really interesting character, but he's so quickly dismissed and he feels really underdeveloped and there's such meat there for like a very interesting, mentally un- unhinged. But is he mentally unhinged? There's loads of stuff to kind of grasp there. Like, I mean, we think we think that like in the book that there's something, well, no, the people within the book think that he's a little mentally unhinged, but we know that he's got, I think it's immediately implied from the very beginning. As soon as we find out time had a son, we're like, oh, well, it's Jeremy Clarkson. He's so in tune with time, so it must be him. And that's really interesting, like, you know, to have this mythical being who is raised as a normal human being. Like, what does that do to, like, his mind? Like, how he perceives himself within the context of the world. So, yeah, it's a real shame that I think the characters we focus on are very thin and not that interesting and the ones that are dismissed have great potential for being very interesting it's a yeah great trapping of this a great uh trapping trip of this novel failing i don't know 
I, I, I completely agree. Like, I think Lob Sang's really bland, which, like, from a certain point of view, you could argue is almost intentional because he's half a person, really. Mm-hmm. But as you said, Jeremy, even though he's sort of like, uh, they're, they're both misfits after a fashion, but Jeremy is a much unhappier misfit that, like, does an even worse job of fitting in. But he also has more characteristics. Like, early on, when, when the two fellows did the Master of the Apprentices and the. Um, Oh, what's his name the abbot's helper guy are, are talking about Lobsang the way they describe him and I believe this is before we, we've met him before the readers have, have met him they describe him like, like being like a smart aleck you know that like he always mm. knows the right answer uh, and he's kind of like like laconic and um, none of that comes across yeah, really there's none of that in like, the book like there's a very brief yeah. part when he arrives first where he's I think he has one sentence that he says quite cheekily to Lutzi but immediately it's just kind of like he's a very passive kind of acceptor of wisdom challenging it in a very blase not blase just like in a very beige way that he's just kind of like oh it's it's I found it quite dull. I found like Lucy and Lobsang's interactions, they had potential, but it never sparked for me. So I was just, I was quite, but on the flip side, if you don't mind me skipping ahead a little bit, I think this is probably, it might be the best representation of Susan in a book. I really, really, well, maybe not for the entire book. I think Hogfather might be that. But having said that, I adore the section where she is in the classroom at the start of the book her entire classroom etiquette and like the descriptions of how she behaves with her students is just maybe it's just because I'm, I'm teaching at the moment now and I can relate so much to her my, well, my favorite bit of this entire book was um, when they're talking about Victor the child that every teacher secretly hates who always raises his hand for every question and I'm like <laughs> oh my god I know students like that I totally relate to that I, every teacher hates that child <laughs> and uh, Susan secretly See? has him pegged as the child most likely to be murdered by his wife in the future <laughs> <laughs> oh, which is great. I, I teach adults, so I'm the opposite. The one who always answers is my favorite. Because <laughs> it means they, you know, they, they kind of cut into the uh, the silence that's often there when I ask a question and the rest of them are looking blank. Um, I, I really like uh, her in the classroom too. I don't like the sort of conflict that's set up with her and Miss Frout, is it, the head of the school? It's an interesting uh, I, one. It's well, I, I, I sort of feel it's just, it's too one-sided in that, like, you know, for one, obviously, Susan's this, like, supernatural teacher who can take the students off. Um, it almost reminded me of, what was that, like, kids cartoon show? Was it the Magic School oh, Bus? Oh, the Magic School Bus, yes. Where, like, their teacher would take them to, yeah, yeah, like, it's sort of like that. Um, the objections, Miss Frout, like, Miss Miss Frout's kind of teaching philosophy is just framed as the most, like, limp-wristed <laughs> Modern progressive Pointless. kind of yeah well, yeah but that's sort of been it. Uh, uh, like I'm, I'm I, I kind of when I when I'm reading about it, I'm like what what is the satirizing because like like who yeah. who would teach like this you know uh, I like as, as a teacher and I'm sure you feel the same way there's like so much of education that is ripe for for satire and for mocking but like I, I was left like I was reading horror and I'm thinking like okay so she's an exaggeration of. Of, of some teaching or like education philosophy, but I was like, like what, what what is that really? But I like I like I, I the I like the moments of Susan in the classroom with the kids. Like I didn't mind the idea in general that because she's so mm. odd and she's such a kind of 
uh, foreboding person that the rest of the staff would be sort of uncomfortable and kind of resentful of her. Like I didn't mind that. I just I just didn't like that he he was kind of framing it against like you know these two education philosophies because it's completely uneven like what are the rest of us supposed to do I was like yeah, educators in the I real world like <laughs> take our students back in time of course, obviously <laughs> I wish I, I, I wish I could I, I suspect that because this came out I think it was around like the early 2000s so this would be around I, I feel like this would be around the time that this modern progressive way of teaching was literally just coming about and even though um, Terry Pratchett himself is a modern progressive teacher, I don't think it would be unusual to think of him as a somewhat of a traditionalist. So I think um, if this I, – I don't really remember this kind of – I wasn't privy to this version of modern progressive teaching, so I don't really know. But imagine if it became – if it came about very, very suddenly, he might view it as you know holding on to ideals, like seeing the value in traditional teaching methods. Um, like even – like one thing that I think – works quite well is um uh when susan talks about the stars you know the star system and the Mm -hmm. head teacher is like oh i don't like that it encourages uh what was it competitiveness and she's like yeah of course and i mean i can i can see both sides of that argument some often um, competitiveness can make some students feel alienated or like um unworthy or whatever you want to call it but there's also an argument to be made that it can help progress it can be it's a useful tool in teaching and it can encourage creative thinking when you're like pitted against like your equals but in like a non you know Mm -hmm. non-violent way (laughs) but it's it's hard to say i mean yeah i'm not i i i I can only guess what it is exactly uh terry pratchett's like trying to satirize there it's because it's not integral to the plot i find it i found it relatively easy to dismiss and it's just an enjoyable part of the book so i wasn't too hung up on it personally um yeah yeah likewise it probably um jumped out more at me because you know i am involved in education than uh, like pratchett one of his great strengths is his ability to present these like two complex uh you know different arguments and sort of discuss them and balance them and have certain characters you know uh, represent their side with certain sides of the argument without ever giving the reader a strong sense that like one of them is 100% right or wrong like when we were talking about the truth last time and that argument Saturus and William have over like you know what the public want and what's really important for them to read like that's a really good example and I don't think it's like too important that he doesn't do this here because Mm. it is such a small part of the book but it was just something that like stuck out to me as so such a one-sided kind of straw man battle because it's something that's mm, you know, close to my heart and uh you know that i'm that i'm involved in a lot but um but yeah i i, I like susan a lot it's funny i remember I, I remember like i read this book years ago and i remember not liking her when she shows up with lobsang and like i felt like in my head like oh she's such a kind of like know-it-all and i realized reading it i was like that was absolutely me <laughs> as like a teen- young teenage boy just projecting myself onto the, like the young bland character of lobsang and like not seeing wanting to see yeah. any out of sorts in any way so when time initially stops and obviously she's well used to this and he's like oh what's going on and she has to explain that was like maybe what's a girl teacher explain it to me i'll be like cool <laughs> No, instantly, you know. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> that was like like essentially my kind of semi conscious way of thinking that whereas you know when I when I read it now I was like, Oh yeah, of course it makes sense. She has much yeah. more experience with these things and um and, and, and there's kind of like a nice um 
like seeing their their path sort of collide and and you as the reader are more familiar with these sort of situations as well yeah, so you're yeah, sort of yeah. in horseshoes <laughs> like bring you know bringing him up to speed on, Bef- on what's before going we get on. to that though can we talk about um what i think is like a fact well okay it's not up there with like the top meetings of like two characters but susan and nanny Ogg's meeting in the middle of the book that's a great moment yeah. that's i mean it's it's almost it's one of those moments that you almost wouldn't even think of. You know, we've talked many times before, but like, what if Granny Weatherwax met Veterinary or something like that? You know, all these characters. Susan and Nanny Og, they're not two characters I would have put together at all. But they have this nice, like, it's nice because Susan sort of fits into the shoes of Magrath, but she's more savvy. You know, like, so, she, I mean, but inter- because mm-hmm. it's interesting because it's a very... It's a very interesting battle of wits there because in some in that entire conversation, it's never really obvious who has the upper hand in the conversation. Like, I mean, basically, the reason that Susan is there to, is to get information out of Nanny Og. And she does do that in the end. So you could say she has the upper hand. But if you were to guess, like, Susan or Nanny Og, like, throw those two together, who do you think would come out on top? Like in a battle of wits or any kind of you know uh, interaction, it, I I would put my money on Nanny Og. I would have said like, no, she knows what she's doing, and it's just Susan hits it on hits the nail on the head when she says, "You want to tell me, you want to tell me this information, but I have to you know convince you to do it. I have to make you, I have to mm-hmm. prove to you that I'm worthy, and that's kind of true. So it's a great little interaction because it feels like a battle, but it's not really like they both want the inter information to be exchanged, but they both kind of have to prove each other first. Like, um, Susan has to prove herself worthy of, or worthy to be privy to the information that Nanny Og has. And by the same token, like Nanny Og kind of has to go through this rigmarole for Susan to realize this isn't just a stupid old woman. This is a very intelligent woman that like she's dealing with. And I love this. Is, this is something that I've only yeah. realized since doing Radio Moorpork. Like the evolution of Nanny Og has been like phenomenal because when I read, read all the Terry Pratchett books as a child, I always had great love for Granny Weatherwax. She was always like, oh, she's so smart. She's such a badass. She's great. She wins every argument. And as a result, Nanny Og always pales in comparison. But reading it again, the subtleties in, like, the development of Nanny Og's character are incredible. Like, she really does come across as this extremely capable person, but she doesn't hold herself as such. She, like, she doesn't walk into a room and say, I am, I can handle literally everybody in this room, because she's always, like, in the shadow of Granny Weatherwax. And I love that. That's that's just a really great moment. Mm -hmm. This interaction is a stellar example of that in my personal opinion yeah yeah what I love about it too is even though there are two characters that like you as a reader know and really like and respect you can see why they initially are suspicious and not respect each other like Nanny Og actually calls out Susan on seeing her it's just some silly old woman and you can see from Susan's position who Susan's this quasi-cosmic being who moves around in time, that here she is having to, like, you know, with the fate of the world in the balance, having to go to the cottage of some woman in the back arse of nowhere and get her to tell her this bit of information, you know? Whereas from Nanny's point of view, you can just see her seeing Susan as, like, this 
upjumped upper class city girl who, you know, who who is going to presume she's uh, better or knows knows more than others. Like you can see why they're wary of one another. In Lords and Ladies, when like the new witches come in and they're like they have this idea of like this is how magic should be done. It's a little bit like that. It's like oh, you're just coming in Mm -hmm. here like you know on death's horse and like you think you know better than everybody. But um, I think the moment that clinches it for me that like where both women really understand and respect each other is that moment that you mentioned where Nanny Og says you probably think I'm a silly old woman like you know just rambling on like this and Susan and this is so good this is just a testament to how good a writer Terry Pratchett is says um, I was thinking that a bit and if it was any other writer you know you'd know like it'd mm-hmm. be oh no I don't think that at all Susan lied you know diplomatically and in her head she has a little monologue or something like that but like no I was thinking that a bit and then Nanny I was just like yeah that's a good answer I'm glad you think that now you know we're on the same page so you know it's a oh, wonderful moment really really wonderful moment yeah yeah it, it reminds me a lot actually of um, I think it, it's one of the big strengths of the uh Song of Ice and Fire books by George R. R. Martin that you have these ca- different characters that you as the reader can, you know, like uh, like and root for but they don't trust or like one another and you have these queasy meetings w- between them where you're thinking, oh, can't ever just get along I like you both reading the book but, but you also you know, completely understand why they uh, don't trust or like each other and there's this electricity in the air when you have those kind of meetings and I suppose the, the Discworld uh, has now been going on for so long at this point where this is what like the 26th book is it um, and you're beginning to see this cross-pollination of it like we had it last time with uh, William and Vimes you know where you have you have these these characters meeting who you as the reader both root for but you also understand why they don't necessarily see eye to eye um, and we've had it with Vimes and Veterinary a lot obviously and now having it here with Susan and Annie Og is great I think it's something that's tricky to pull off without either succumbing to um, probably understandable urge to just have all your good guys team up and get along or to um, have their arguments seem so uh, imbalanced that the reader just comes away thinking oh one of these characters I previously liked is just you know acting yeah exactly just like acting stubborn and stupid just so there'll be a conflict between the two of them it's a delicate balancing um, act so yeah it's really it's masterfully well done, done. Um, can I ask you about? Uh, we will get into the themes of this book very mm-hmm. soon because that's going to be a, that's going to be a big hurdle to jump. But um, before we get into that, uh, I want to talk about the horseman for a bit. So the entire thing with the horseman. So five horsemen. Um, I pers- I remember liking it a lot, and I still like it. But I have to say, I don't love it. Like, it's not as good as I remember. Like, I love the idea of Ronnie Soak, but he's another one who I feel is a little bit, like, underdeveloped. I feel like there could be a lot more to him. My, of the five, the one that I really wanted to hear more from was War. Like, I love his whole development of being completely henpecked by his new wife, who's a Valkyrie. Like, I think that's Mm -hmm. fantastic, and I, I would have loved to see more than that. I... I'm not going to lie, I had zero interest in Pestilence, who is, um, you know, just scared. I'm like, okay, that's exactly what I expected from that character, so whatever. Famine, I often mix up with Pestilence, which will give you an idea how much I care about him. 
Um, Death is obviously <laughs> the instigator. I love him, obviously. Uh, War of the three that Death searches out. War is the only one I feel has a really interesting, meaty development. That I'm like, that's interesting. I'd love, I'd love more of that. Like that would have been great. I almost would have liked it if. Um, Rather than having the fifth horseman, even though we're giving up that stellar reference, I would have loved it if it was the three horsemen and they couldn't find the fourth one, which is war. And he was just hiding, like hiding out. He was with his wife who won't let him go out, ride out. And that's the whole hook that like Lucy has to find war. And he eventually finds him and is like, oh, well, I'd love to ride out to the apocalypse. But my wife says I don't like riding out in the apocalypse, you know. So um, that's my personal take. What about you? Yeah, I, I loved it. I, I, I've heard uh, I, I, when I was reading up other people's opinions on this book, um, I think it was Vacuous Wastrel, the blogger, said this is one of the most cinematic of Pratchett books. And like that, you know, there's so many scenes you can picture looking amazing on screen. And the four horsemen riding out and fighting these innumerable hordes Absolutely. of auditors is one of them. Um, also, I, I, you, you've got the art of the Discworld as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the illustrations Paul Kippy does, of the, the four of them look amazing uh, on our side. Although, and I understand Kippy is following on from the description of the book. I've always been a bit confused about how Chaos looks, because he, he's kind of like described being in armor, and Kippy depicts him also like, looking like a kind of like a Roman centurion or Greek hoplite. And I've never understood why, like, Chaos would look like a soldier that sort of represents like organized war I, you know I personally like I've never I, I don't take the art ones into account the way I always picture him is as a very standard milkman but with an absolutely manic look in his eyes that's the bit basically <laughs> pretty much how I picture Ronnie Soak slash chaos like and it serves me well so that's what I'm sticking with forget the artwork <laughs> well it's, it's a description in the book too he talks about it I definitely, he definitely describes the helmet quite um, in, in detail but uh, no, yeah, I, I love, I love the uh, moment. I love, I love to get back together. I love the reflections on the, the apocalypse and what it like. The fact that at first you're like, okay, well, they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but the world's never ended yet. Like, we, we do see death and war together in interesting times. Yes, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I yeah. do like the force, and then they have like the, the foreshadowing of, of uh, chaos. Like, I like how I like yeah. how he isn't just like. It doesn't feel like he's just kind of shoved in at the end. Like, I like how he feels. It's very organic that he shows up, like, at uh, Jeremy's house to deliver milk. And I think he shows up again before that. And, like, in mo- in a lot of books, if a character like this is just kind of shoehorned in, you're like, what's this guy? He's probably pivotal to the plot. But I remember the first time I read it, like, it did not click with me until that moment in the book. Just like, oh, this guy is actually, like, a mythical being. Wow, that's really cool. So it's done well. Yeah. It's done well. Yeah, I, I think there's a... He's so deft at, like, having scenes that do so much at once. I read the first or second time you meet Ronnie Soak. There's a line from Jeremy's point of view that says, like, Jeremy considered him a friend, although Jeremy, you know, friend to Jeremy meant someone, like, he talked to once yes. a week. <laughs> which, like, to me, was just absolutely, absolutely devastating and completely won me over to Jeremy utterly as a character. Exactly. So because of that, I mean, obviously, I, I knew having read it before what Ronnie Soak was, but I feel like, like, in that moment, Ronnie, you know, Ronnie Soak is being introduced in the long term so you can get to know him and that reveal won't come out of the blue, won't seem like it's completely out of the blue later. But in that moment, his purpose is just to, like, <laughs> increase your, your sympathy and your, uh, I suppose, your... Um, perspective of what a kind of 
sad, uh, repressed, restricted life, Jeremy Lee. Go back to the, the idea of that they talk about the different apocalypses, like how the world, um, you know, in ancient times, people's world might have been just a village, yeah, and yeah. that village ending was was the apocalypse. And mm. uh, there's a great line about like the like they. The apocalypse would happen and then they discovered there was something over the next horizon you know like a new country a new valley a new island and it has as the world had run out of horizons yeah. like, you know there's there's nowhere left to go and it, the stakes are, are are so high and i i think it's it's fantastic because i i don't know it just set me off thinking so much about how our perspective on what the world is has changed throughout time like right like now i think we're all struggling to wrap our minds around something like climate change you know that's kind of devastating to the whole world and needs a concerted effort from the whole world to combat it you know and it's it's just like like how do you do that there's no kind of escaping from that like say you think of uh even like a you know world war ii which was this when it happened, it was this like unparalleled in, in kind of its its international scope and how many countries were taken up and and where where we're from in Ireland, it obviously had uh, you know quite quite a big effect, but nowhere near as much as the countries that were actually involved. Exactly, in it. we can yeah, still yeah. remove ourselves from it to a degree. In fact, like we never refer to it as the war officially; it was referred to as the emergency. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, you know, it's like you you could. That was a conflict that stretched all over the world, but it was still possible in some way to be removed from it. But you weren't completely removed from it because you still had to play like the kind of real politic games. There would still be like like a German and British and, and, and American ambassadors in the countries of like non-combatants like Ireland that would then have to like deal with them and so forth. Yeah. And before that, like hundreds of years before that, you'd have something like say like the Black Plague in Europe, right? That was just like incredibly devastating event that when you go back and look at accounts they literally think it's the end of the world at the time mm. there's people speculating like I think there's there's some monks writing that's he's talking about like he's setting it down for posterity and, and there's some line about like if there's still anyone left of the race of Adam to read this in a hundred years time he's basically thinking well we'll all be gone but if you were living in say like like sub-Saharan Africa or East Asia or in like the yes undiscovered um america's like you know wouldn't wouldn't even register like mm. like okay maybe maybe in sub-saharan africa and east asia maybe you'd hear like stories of it you yeah. know but it, it wouldn't wouldn't be a factor at all like it wouldn't be an apocalypse to you mm. um yeah and it just yeah going like all the way back as, as we've gone on our, our scope of the world has increased and it's sort of increased the stakes for everything, mm. you know, and and you see this play out in the kind of more uh, real politics style bits of the discourse, like in the Fifth Elephant and the Truth, like veterinary talking about, you know, uh, all the way going back to Jingo actually, like now the world is watching and you can't just yeah. you know invade another country and expect no one to react. Like so, we were seeing it play out in the discourse in a real politics sense, but in a kind of like a cosmic sense and in a sense of just people's consciousness. You know, Tifa Time does a good job of, of dealing with that, of like uh, how our idea of the apocalypse has changed over time. I, I remember, do you remember we studied um, the poetry at John Keats in college? Mm, yeah. And um, there, there's one on like uh, Ode to a Grecan Orn or something. And in the poem, he's speculating about like, uh, you know, how he's looking at this Orn, and even though it was made hundreds of years ago, I think if not thousands, 
and that like people will still be seeing it hundreds of years later like that's this kind of like line of, of continuity throughout history and i remember when we were discussing it in class someone um brought up the point of like this is very much characteristic of the the time he was living in the early 19th century i believe um where like he could kind of just imagine history going forward and whatever developments it would bring there would always be people around who would kind of understand and appreciate this urn whereas like we in the 21st century can think of scenarios like say like nuclear warfare or climate change that would either utterly like wipe out humanity or completely devastate it to the point that like anything that passed, like civilization before would be rendered moot and meaningless mm. you know so that our concept of like of time and of um continuity and of things like being in perpetuity has completely changed you know we kind of we can see end points in time mm. in civilization that maybe earlier uh generations uh, couldn't conceive of yeah and like this book it, it plays around with that sort of thing like in really like it's <laughs> it plays around with this in a very playful way like i like that it doesn't like for me personally, tell me if you disagree with this, but I personally don't feel like it's very heavy handed. It just kind of like plays around the playground of philosophy and like, you know, how we view the world and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, I do like that they bring up, um, oh God, what was his name? The guy who had the dream about the butterfly. I think it was Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi, I think it was his name. Uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce that, sorry. But. You know, just the idea that... So in the novel, some random monk had a dream that he was a butterfly. And then when he wakes up, he wonders to himself, "Was am I a man who dreamt he was a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly who's having a dream that he's a man? And it's, you know, it, it brings into, like, the idea, the notion of, like, you know, what what aspects of reality are actual reality? What is real? What is not? You know, I think, therefore I am. And it is a very playful way of looking at it. Like, I like the way that it is integrated into the novel in very, I keep going back to playful, but I do feel like it is playful. It's not like, you know, trying to get a message across because yeah. if I'm being honest, I don't think there really is a message except, Hey, here's some interesting ideas and just putting them forward. Like, I like how, uh, Susan kind of uses this or, or employs this idea with, um, do you know towards the end when she's at the uh, or when she and Lobsang slash Jeremy are at the clock and they're meeting when and mm-hmm. she says, OK, I know this isn't real. This is just my brain unable to process what I'm experiencing. So it's putting these four like she is aware, like because she is kind of an eternal being, she is aware of the functions of like the human mind. And she is a hu- like she is a human in this. So she's aware of the functions of the human mind. So she's aware that there are some things that are outside of her comprehension and she's able to kind of step back and provide commentary on that, which is exactly what Terry Pratchett is doing with this entire book. He's stepping back and passing commentary on the idea of like, we can't comprehend, we can't comprehend everything. And he's like putting all these deeply philosophical ideas towards us and just kind of letting us play with them. Like another one I found very interesting was, um, uh, I'm trying to remember. So it's when they talk about the smallest measurement of time, you know, and it's a really interesting aspect of mathematics. Like when you're trying, it's like, so they use like the smallest literal measurement, not of time, but like measurement in general and how I think there's debate, I think 
on whether it's po- well, not whether it's possible to measure this, but like whether it exists, like you know whether like you know it's just a strict because obviously you, every time you get smaller and smaller and smaller, everything has to have a beginning and an end, otherwise it doesn't exist, right? So. And if it has a beginning and an end, that means, like, you can probably make it smaller again. So, like, this idea of, like, time as a continuous flow or, like, broken up into fragments. And when he talks, when Terry Pratchett talks about, like, it being broken into fragments, it comes into the idea of, is this world that we're in right now, like, the world that was here a moment ago? Like, it hasn't been destroyed and just recreated again. Because if you think of, like, time divided into these like infinitesimal inf- i can never pronounce that word infinitesimal these like infinitely infinitesimal in- what infinitesimal infinitesimal sorry yes i i always forget that but if you think of time divided into these infinitesimal like uh units then because there's so many of them you're trying to think like what could actually take place in these billions trillions zillions of units like between one second and the next. So, and again, these are all very playful ideas. And I don't know if it's a flaw or in this case, I think it might actually be a plus that there is no message per se. It's just, it's philosophy. It's just throwing these ideas out at you and like allowing the reader to kind of think on them. Like even chaos theory is thrown out at the, I mean, obviously at the very beginning, it's, I think it's wonderfully ironic that, um, uh, the whole idea of this is the auditors are trying to prevent chaos. They're trying to ca- mm-hmm. bring about order. And it is chaos theory, which ultimately is their downfall because they put an auditor into a human body. And like that's like one small change that they make and everything just goes to shit. Like it is because they created Lady Legine that basically everything mm-hmm. goes to shit in the end. Yeah, I... I- I think there's there's a lot in it that, as you said, is dealt with quite playfully and quite subtly, but about how 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 to live your life fulfillingly and the relationship of that to time, right? Like uh, there's this great line of witches abroad when they you know when they go nanny goes inside the uh, the clock to stop it from striking 12 to stop the story taking place and she's seeing all the inner workings of the clock and she says look at all of this just to uh, chop time up into little bits you know and there's that idea of like when you know when, when we develop clocks the idea of them sort of taming time but then u- us being tamed by it you know like prior to, like our whole relationship to time change prior to that you had I suppose the relationship with Tom would be more naturalistic. Like you had farmers, agricultural workers working according to the sun and the seasons and things like that. And now we have these like strict appointments of, oh, you have to be here by nine fifteen, you know, this time. Right. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but there's also, I think, things in here about it's like for for humans to sort of comprehend that you have to have it like this relationship with time that's that is sort of detailed and ordered after a fashion. Mm. Like it's like the, the auditors can, can comprehend infinity, but it's like, they can't comprehend specifics. You know, you know, they all start naming one another after, after colors. And, uh, I think it's Mr. White's getting angry when they say they run out of colors. He's like, they can't run out of colors. And they're like, Oh yeah, but we're running out of, you know, words <laughs> to call colors, which, um, just so I know my, my brother and his, his boyfriend recently bought a house, um, and they, they, I think they won't be moving in for a few months. But 
my mom and my brother's boyfriend are like like planning all that you know how to kind of like what to do with the house in terms of painting and so on and they were looking through these catalogues of colors and it's just like a, to me it seems like like a bafflingly <laughs> wide variety of shades for every little color all with their you know special little name like duck egg blue and cerulean blue and when i was reading that line about him saying you know the, the other auditor saying to him oh but there are only a certain amount of you know names for colors i thought like oh just, just get yourself a dulux catalog and you know <laughs> go mental because it brings us back to like the idea of time again and to another concept which we both studied in college historiography which i'm sure you remember quite well right <laughs> historiography and historicity mm-hmm. but um it's very interesting like the way like i i even though I think it's one of the duller part of the books, the bit at the start where Lucy and Lobsang are having their little interactions, it also brings about these very interesting moments of, um, you know, referring to history and like what people remember and like how it's remembered. Like they do it in a very literal sense. Uh, Death uses that great metaphor with the tablecloth where, so, okay, where he has like the set table and yeah. this is, okay, so... All the cutlery and the plates and everything like that. That's events in history. And the tablecloth is time. And he whips the tablecloth out. And he says, now we can use the time for another thing. And um, it's really interesting because um, when they're moved... Like uh, Susan points out, ah, yes, but you knocked over the salt shakers. Yes, it's a good metaphor, isn't it? It's like, that's really good because that's... I feel like a reference to the idea that some things happen in time, but not necessarily always remembered, you know? So like, um, Coombe Valley comes up a couple of times in this, which is like the big war, kind of like their world war two, I think in uh, Discworld. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's interesting how I think, I think it's Lucy who says like a lot of people remember it as being really recently. Other people remember it as being like, you know, hundreds of years ago. And I think Susan says something along the lines of, well, people will notice that, you know, some people are remembering it differently, like when it happened. And Death says something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, some people are constantly living in a war that happened many, many years ago. So, you know, it's not that unusual. And like, it's true, actually, because like the emphasis that we put on certain events in history changes throughout time. Like the example that I always think of is the one we learned this in college when, um, remember when we we were in college when it happened, we had the first proper Arthur's Day. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, so Arthur's Day, like, is it's for our listeners, it's an event that's celebrated in but it Ireland. Was, it's, for, it's now discontinued. And see, that's that's great. That's a perfect example. It's like, what what was it again? It was like, it was, it was, it was supposed it was, to be for the, the 250th anniversary of Guinness, and they, they were doing like a celebration that, like, it was almost, it was like a kind of quasi St. Patrick's Day. Like, they had, I mean, I think you had like, I, I'd, uh, Guinness founded in 1759 but they also done an ad campaign around the time where like Mm. the fellas on the ad were saying that 1759 like 1 minute to 6pm was actually the time that Arthur Guinness first brewed the first point Um, so everybody started yeah yeah I think you got like a a cheaper point that's 1759 and everyone said to Arthur and there were all these I mean the cool part about it was there were all these secret gigs around Dublin where you could go into just a local pub and they'd have someone quite famous playing in the corner who had been you know uh, sent there by Mm -hmm. Guinness but it it ran for a couple of years and it was discontinued basically because I know like people were kind of uh, disgusted with the idea of this like holiday that was just well it wasn't even a holiday that was the thing but like this event that was just an excuse to get pissed 
Um, mm. and I, but that's the thing because it was like re- for a brief period of time it was remembered as being significant like I remember everybody talking about Arthur's Day when it first became a thing and I was like oh yeah let's do this let's go to Arthur's Day let's have lots of fun it's like a significant well I don't think anyone actually said it's a significant moment to remember but the vibe of it was it's a significant moment <laughs> in time to remember but then it just fizzled out you know so like for a brief period of time this was a very important part of history and then suddenly it wasn't. And that in itself is just very, very interesting and something that kind of, you know, is explored to a reasonable degree in this book, I think. A re- reasonable, not excessively. And yeah, just reasonable, Matt. <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, I, I was, I, I remember reading an article recently about like how, say, now since World War Two. Hitler has and the Nazis have become like the, you know, our our re- mental and societal reference point for evil. You know, so if anything like really bad is happening, we sort of like compare it to the to the Nazis. You know, um, I mean, yeah, we have that idea on the internet. As soon like, there's well. always that point. As soon as somebody like you know, you can always tell every argument will always degrade to well, you're a Nazi eventually. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. Like it's used very egregiously, but I mean, it's also I think a useful thing for us as like a mm. critical society to be able to look at what like governments are doing and say, hey, like the Nazis passed a law like this, um, you know, and yeah. that puts it in perspective of uh, you know how dangerous it is. But I was reading this article that like before World War Two. Who were what was the reference points for you know evil and things like that, and it was loads of them like like Napoleon was used a lot, which which I found kind of funny. Because oh. I remember I had this idea when I was a child that like the the triumvirate like like the three most evil men who ever lived were like Hitler, Stalin, and Napoleon, and like Napoleon was no angel, but he was probably a lot better than Hitler or Stalin. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but I don't know. In, in my head as a kid, like they were the, they were the three you know the, the three worst. But like it was Napoleon, and there would be a lot of conquerors from the ancient world that you wouldn't hear referenced as much in say like mainstream journalistic circles or casual conversation now so it's like obviously at this point in time say like in the 20s and 30s prior like it, it was quoting articles that were discussing the rise of hitler you know like in the uk and the us at the time like when the nazis are seizing power they're sort of like how they're making sense of them uh, and obviously the, these particular conquerors and events were like much more prominent to people then than they are to us now because it's it's like mm. part of their relevance as signifiers or reference points for you know evil or like terrible upheaval has been superseded by World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's there's also uh, I I just like the fact that like part of what Terry Pratchett's doing here is addressing all this like ainly retentive fans who are saying ah itchy and scratchy episode uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like we're complaining about the, the messed up Discworld timeline where the two philosophers small gods is implied to have happened like hundreds of years before because the Omnians are, are these like peaceful people in the, the quote unquote like modern Discworld books but the two philosophers who are in that are also in pyramids which is also implied to have hap- you know have happened in the you know modern Discworld so, like, part of it is him mopping up that. Like, he has Lucy bring up the example to uh, Love Sang, which wasn't even one that had crossed my mind, but made so much sense where he, he says how they have, on the one hand, this Shakespearean, like, Elizabethan 
era theater like the the disc in Weird Sisters being treated as a new development but they also have an opera house that's more in the style of the 19th century being treated yes. as if it's been there years and years and it's just established part of that. the fabric yeah. of Angkor Park society so part of what he's doing with like the, the events of this book you know the previous glass clock being smashed in this one and the events to mop up is kind of coming up with some sort of explanation for that it's just to satisfy you know the more anally retentive uh um, part of the fandom but like another part is this incredibly clever reflection on how time works uh, like individually and across the social level like say you have somewhere like in cities time tends to pass much quicker you know and like new developments yes. in technology uh, tend to you know find their impact in cities much quicker whereas say like up until maybe even the early part of the 20th century you had people in like parts of Russia before uh, Trotsky um, and and, and uh, the rest of the communists like um, introduced electricity to parts of Russia you had like peasants there who were living more or less like their ancestors in the middle ages would have lived you know like they they wouldn't yeah. have like there would have been very little difference between their lives and the lives of their great 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 grandfather. But if at the same time you pick someone out, like in Moscow, who's the same age, like his life is completely different to his great 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 grandfather's. So you have those this, remarks about like getting time from the sea and like how you know fish don't use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so yeah, it's so clever. And um, again, you have but you have that idea of like that measuring time and time progressing sort of us needing it to put some perspective on our lives in some way like as I said the auditors can't really deal with it they can either really deal with this kind of featureless infinity that they want if they will succeed in stopping time but once they then when they become human they go to the opposite extreme where they're kind of trying to find like constant ultra detailed things to hang on to Um, yeah and then you Actually, have Susan, sorry, when she's initially fascinated by the idea of meeting someone like her, when she's told time has a son, she talks about the difficulty of her like bonding with, you know, normal people and making friends is the idea that she kind of like sees them as mayflies, you know, she'll be always around or she'll be able to step outside of time and they'll be almost mm-hmm. gone in the blink of an eye to her. So like her ability to kind of live life fulfillingly is sort of hindered by her um her inability to just like kind of live life by under the, the the rule of the clock in the way that we do as normal mm. people. I do feel though there is a missed opportunity there in that in what you're saying between like you know two people living in two different not time zones but like two zones in which time operate differently like you said between the countryside and like the city and you know how people can live completely different lives I feel like that would be a perfect way to use the Lobsang and Jeremy dynamic but for some reason it's not employed in this and it's frustrating because at the start of the book Lobsang is in the temple of the history monks like which is essentially the countryside a place frozen in time mm-hmm. but for some not con- a logical rather than a contrived reason for a logical reason both he and uh, Jeremy are born in Ankh-Morpork and it's only quite late in uh, Lobsang's like I think it's like I think he's I think he's depicted as a teenager isn't he? Yeah 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 so it's quite late in his teenage years that he is brought to the history monks and again it would be a great example of you know exemplifying that and also of chaos theory in general because there's that moment where um, Susan is saying oh uh, you know you've lived completely different lives even though you're the same person so of course you will look a little bit different 
But that would have been so much better if Terry Pratchett could have found some way to have um, Lobsang born up in the mountains with Jeremy in the city. But then I suppose if you're doing that, it would make more sense, I think. No, actually, no, 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 that would be accurate because Jeremy is so obsessed with measuring time and following time. So it would make more sense for him to be living city life. Whereas mm-hmm. Lobsang, who unfortunately is a little undeveloped, although it does sort of work in his character of being a very lazy, lethargic sort of person, that like he could just be somebody who doesn't really care about schedules and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, I mean, their attitudes to time are, are neatly uh, mirrored or kind of uh, contrasted, where, yeah, you have Jeremy, who is is so exact and is all about kind of taming time and measuring and having this very exact idea. And Lobsang, who's almost liberated from time, that he can kind of take his time to do whatever he, whatever he likes... And they're both sort of either extreme of, um, you know, they're kind of extreme exaggerations of how, of how like we live by time, you know, in, in real life, in that we can exactly. like, to a certain extent be like Jeremy, we can be very uh, uh, polychronic, you know, our, our concept of time can be quite fluid and we just do things when we need to and not really follow a schedule or we can be, or sorry, be like Lobsang in that regard, or we can be like Jeremy and be very monochronic and have this idea of there's one exact way to measure time and, you know, everything is better if it's going uh, according to that. And of course, there are, you know, exaggerated versions of that. Uh, but you're right, like in other ways, they aren't contrasted as much. It's a sort of pity that they never get to speak to one another. You know, it would be nice if yeah. maybe, like, obviously when they meet, I think it's when they touch, they instantly combine into one person. But it's a pity mm. that... Um, you know, maybe if there was something that had to be done to get them to recombine, so you have a few pages of them interacting as separate people, mm. it would be nice. I think so too. I I, I, I like that. Uh, um, when there's a kind of I don't know a decent amount of awe that's inspired by Lobsang sort of ascending to this um, state of I don't know like enlightenment where he's beyond time, and it sort of works well where he's kind of like vulnerable and helpless in that he can't really do anything until I think it's they, they get him to the clock but um, but also he's all knowing so he can direct the other characters what to do I think like it does a decent job of kind of like giving Susan and, and, and uh, Miria slash Unity and Lucy like an advantage to help them navigate through the chaos but doesn't sort of completely neuter the stakes by you know, overpowering one of his characters a lot. I do think there's a certain amount lost in that because Lobsang is such a bland character. Like, there's no um, personal tragedy in him, like, in the fact that, like, by reaching this state of, like, almost a godhood or even meta-godhood by becoming time, he's losing... Like, he's no longer a person, you know? And you get that a bit through Susan, who kind of, like, wistfully thinks that, like, of, of that they, you know, they, they can't be together. Uh, and you have that nice, at the end, with the perfect moment. But you don't, um, I suppose you, as a reader, don't feel any sense of loss. Or, uh, I, I won't get into it too much. I'm aware of spoiling this for people that haven't seen it, but I'm thinking of the, the current season of, of Game of Thrones, where, so look, if, if you don't want to get spoiled on this, like, jump ahead a few minutes, but where, like, Bran Stark is now living sort of beyond time, and he's just this emotionless uh, seer, like, he actually has a line to Tyrion where he says, I don't want anything anymore. Um, and there, there's a lot of probably justifiable complaints about how they kind of 
a lot of the fantasy elements of the show they haven't used as well and they've sort of misused or underexplained his abilities in general but I think what they have done well and this is probably as much of a testament to uh, Isaac Hempstead Wright who fair play to him was only a child when he started is that because you as the viewer have seen him go from this like kind of like sprightly little kid who was like vulnerable and had his own hopes and fears to this kind of emotionless like uber seer there's there, there's something kind of unsettling in like you know when he speaks like when he can kind of give give an advantage to the characters you like you're like oh it's grand yeah have Bran around to like reveal this information but there's also a continual tragedy to him that he has just been he's no longer a person in that regard you know and and I think that that is something they've done like a decent enough job of getting across like that conversation he has with Tyrion where he says I, you know I wouldn't envy me I live in the past and you don't really like like Lobsang slash Jeremy are in kind of a similar situation where they go from being these actual normal people to ascending to the state where they're like never going to be able to interact normally really with you know with, with their peers and their friends anymore and their perception mm. of everything around them of all of time will set them apart from anyone but I don't know there isn't as much of a sense of loss there of you know like obviously it's essential for the plot for the world to get saved for them to reach this state but there's no kind of sense of tragedy that like it, it's kind of there with Susan but I think the weird thing about the Susan uh, Lobsang quasi-romance uh, is that like I, I think he does a really good job from the very off of getting of getting across Susan's fascination with this idea that there's someone who be like her and you know what a uh, unique opportunity it will be for her to meet and bond with someone who has that same perspective but you know obviously then when she meets him like he kind of isn't like her at all initially in that she is in that sort of uh, teacher role she's much more used to crazy cosmic situations like this so she can't relate to him on that level um, uh, and then when he reaches this zen state I mean she can hardly relate to him at all and weirdly a romance that is more developed is Jeremy and Miria slash Unity yeah and uh, I missed that really sweet and yeah complete, but completely underplayed like uh it's, it's sort of weird that they don't have any resolution in the same way. I, I, yeah, I, I do get into more, but I just, I, I love, I love how Jeremy's depicted so much here. I love, like, he seems, I don't know, he seems where we to try and fit him into, like, a, our kind of, like, real life um, perspective of uh, mentality, which probably isn't a, you know, uh, like for like comparison, giving it no one in real life is the half made son of time that we know of but he, he seems like he's like you know somewhere on the autism spectrum uh you know yeah and, and actually that's something that, that that was an issue i have as well when jeremy and lobsang kind of fuse together to become time essentially it doesn't feel to me like a fusion of two people it just feels to me like lobsang assimilates jeremy because Jeremy, I, I never get a sense that any aspect of his characteristics are brought out in the new time. You know, there's no nervousness. There's no, like, you know, insistence on, like, you know, time being measured or anything like that. I mean, it's his job, but he's not, like, you know, really, really, like, you know, anal about it. It's just it's just a case of, like, Lobsang comes around, here's Jeremy, sucks him into his body, and is like, suddenly... Jeremy is whole again. Or no, no, sorry. Lobsang is whole again. And like, it's not a case of two equal sides. It's just like, you know, Lobsang has just assimilated Jeremy and now here he is. 
and he's complete and that makes him smarter and that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the view I came with. I didn't buy the romance between Susan and Lo- and um, Lobsang at all, or even Susan and Time. Like, even though I will say that I do enjoy the moment, the very final moment where Susan's in the stationary cupboard. I enjoy the moment, but I don't buy it. If that makes sense, like I think it would be great if that was a romance that felt real. But because it doesn't feel real, it's like this is a very cliched but well put together moment, you know, that doesn't really have any depth to it. Um, like yeah. I can, appre- I, can appre- I can appreciate it for that. Like I'm not like I'm not trying to like crap all over it and say that like you know it's terrible, it's awful. Like it's good. It's just that it hasn't earned. It, the moment isn't earned by the end of the book, which is unfortunate because I still even before I remember. Re- I remember that moment even before I read this book like I think this is only the second time so I do remember that ending I was like I was impressed by it I was like oh that's really cool but I don't remember them being a couple I wonder if that actually happens turns out I was wrong or right rather that they don't so yeah it's Mm, it's 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 a tricky bit. It's a tricky bit. Um, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. Lot- particularly about the, the love song Jeremy thing. I think it's sort of touched on when they they ask uh, time what to call him, and he says love song because I was never happy as Jeremy. Um, so it's kind of sense of like, well, you know, why would he now that he's whole again? Why would he want to uh, lean into those aspects of his character? But then it kind of begs the question of like, well, but he was also incomplete as love song. So why was he? happier or you know more fulfilled maybe because he was with the history monks and there you know but yeah I, I don't know it's like um i would have liked it if there was a brief meeting between time and lady Lejeune, even if it was an unhappy kind of meeting or something because i know it's unfortunate that terry pratchett want like it's very clear that he wanted there to be a relationship between susan and lobsang because i was trying to think of this actually I don't think there is another book with Susan in it. I think this is the last Susan yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, indeed it is. As far as yeah, I know. so it's unfortunate that he wanted like you know the two more significant characters to have a romance because the meteor romance, the one that feels more real and genuine, is actually the one between uh, Jeremy and Lady Lejeune. And maybe that's just because it's more flawed. I don't know. It's a little more awkward, which is something that I personally can relate to. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think but, there's something in that, and that like uh, um, Susan's attraction to like Lobsanger, this idea of time having a son, is that because of her powers, for want of a better term, yeah. she's like can't really relate to to, to normal people. Um, and, and you know you can kind of understand that as, as as a reader, and it's an intriguing idea. But in in like Jeremy and Lady Lejeune, you get this you get this much more like mundane and kind of relatable version of people whose romance is born out of the idea of that like they feel like they found the one person who'll understand them. Like you have Jeremy, yeah. who like uh, as I said, like he, you know he, he seems to be who's like. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe we have uh, like autistic listeners or autistic readers of this book who, who like, you know, could, could uh, relate particularly to his um, uh, his passion for uh, for clocks and clockwork. But I think, like, for Discworld readers in general, who would tend to be a fairly nerdy bunch, like that idea of like really loving something and kind of not understanding why everyone else doesn't love it, and like awkwardly fumbling for conversation when you have to mm, yeah, uh, yeah, talk yeah. about something else. 
is something you can really relate to. And then you have Lady Lejeune, who, because she's like new to the idea of humanity, um, like doesn't really know how to cope with just normal human emotions and like you know it's just mm. like like function in society. So she's sort of touched and confused by his like you know overtures. Uh, and, and there's a nice contrast with her that she's been constructed as the most like perfect, beautiful woman, but in this way that like, but like that's her body and the, the kind of thing that's inhabiting it can't really uh, use that perfectly. Like that, you know, I, I think Igor or, or Jeremy describes her like it's, there's an almost uncanny valley effect where her mm. expressions on her face just pass from one to the other without transition, and you know, there's something kind of ethereal about her. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think there's there's something like, like Susan and and Time, like the end character of Time, are two characters who can't relate to normal people because they have these special powers and status that they've got to use for you know greater good and greater importance. Uh, whereas like Jeremy and Lady Lejeune are characters who sort of have special abilities or qualities. You know, Jeremy's case, he's like he's a genius uh, as far as like clock construction is concerned, and Lady Lejeune is kind of like built as this like incredibly beautiful and seemingly chic woman but neither of them know how to use them very well and they're kind of fumbling around uh, and yeah that's uh, there's something really endearing about that um, I, do, I do think just one quick note on, on Igor who we, we obviously get a bit here with him uh, you know he, he's very suspicious of Lady Lujan is I think there's this kind of running team with the Igors for me that I don't know how intentional it is but like that they're a very like morally ambivalent uh, set of characters, morally ambiguous. Um, we, we talked in Carpe Juggalum about you have the Igar who's like really nostalgic for the old Count. And mm. we talked about how like a, a letdown for the book for us was about how like the old Count's, the, the nostalgia, like the, the book kind of expects you to share that nostalgia for the old Count when he's also kind of a monster too. And, yeah. and we said, oh, maybe, like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if if like when he comes out he is depicted as a monster and you realize that like oh yeah Igor's nostalgia was Igor's nostalgia was completely misplaced and you sort of get that here too like Igor we as a reader are kind of like in his corner when we're like yeah what's Lady Lejeune up to Igor's right to be Mm. suspicious like Jeremy like he's lovely and we relate to him but we can also see he's just a bit kind of too love struck to you know and, and, and socially inept to uh, figure out what's going on but also like Igor's kind of like constantly making casual references to helping with these like mad scientists and like nefarious people <laughs> yeah. in the past but never really taking any responsibility for it you know yeah, and, yeah. and he's he very, very convenient kind of like loyalty like as he puts it like so it's yeah it's just a case of like you know, there's loyalty up to a point, but like all the loyalty really is to Igorhood. Yes, yeah. I think I think that is the easiest way to sum it up. Like I, I don't think it's like um, unintentional per se. I think like you know Terry Pratchett does have he does imprint on all his Igors a kind of false loyalty like to their masters, but in reality they're all just loyal to themselves more than anything else. Personally, that's 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 how I feel about it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think that like line about like the loyalty to Igor sort of yeah underlines that he is. There's an awareness that he is that kind of uh, um, morally ambivalent character. Um, Actually, can I just one thing I really loved in this, and it's just like a very very small moment, and just a bit that I enjoy. It doesn't really have a huge relevance in the plot, but I really really enjoyed the moment where we learned that Igor's grandfather had worked on the previous clock. And when the new clock is being built, 
Igor, like we learned that Igor's hands are actually his grandfather's hands, literal hand-me-downs, yeah. which is great. And uh, every time he gets close to the new clock, he found his, he found his hands were clenching all by themselves. And it's just a small moment, like it's not particularly significant, but it's just a a wonderful piece of storytelling. Like you know, you know something happened there, and you're just like, oh, that's that's good, that's meaty. I like that. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot. There's a, a kind of a like subtle, unsettling, and um, maybe horror is too strong a word in this book, but like, Omin- I, I, like I suppose you know, it's disturbing, ominous. ominous. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's yeah. just it. And and I think all the bits that refer back to the original glass clock and its construction. I don't know. For me, they were just really ominous and unsettling. And I, I really wish. I mean, maybe maybe this is for the best because when you know kind of what's what's just in our heads is often scarier but I found myself wishing we were going to get a flashback to that bit like when, when Lutzi says so we almost stopped it that we would like you know we'd go back to that bit and we'd see the fellow who constructed it and yeah and, and the bits with the uh, the auditors in human form when, when Mr. like there's I mean so much that's really funny like their kind of uh, just their attempts to adapt to it and like they're kind of like uh, calling it seniority over color, like ah, uh, white is the you know the better color. Yeah, uh, w- uh, white is the better color. Therefore, I am the, the leader here. All of that's really funny. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I love Mister White's kind of early attempts of getting to grips with humanity when he starts claiming certain stuff is against their religion, as <laughs> uh, the drinking of tea or something. But oh yeah, th- that that scene of like him just standing there with the axe having killed loads of the others is <laughs> like, really disturbing when you, you know, can think about it for, for half a second. We should actually we should talk about the the entire section where the otters are becoming human because I feel like that's a significant part of the book. The moment when the well the moments towards the end of the novel when the otters all become human. First of all, before we go into any of the deep themes that they explore in that. It's just incredibly enjoyable. Like, it's really, really fun seeing all the auditors, like, coping with human mechanisms and, like, you know, biological processes. And there's what the one that I really enjoy is the idea that a lot of them are confused. There is a moment where when the new auditors have become uh, men and women to supervise Lady Legine. And there's this moment where they're all standing around kind of staring at each other. And after a pause, Lady Legine says, you have to speak verbally. You can't read each other's thoughts like this, like as human forms, you know, little <laughs> things like that. Um, it's a really fun part of it. Um, I like how it explores the idea of being human, which I'm trying to think, is that something that has been explored much before with the, with the possible exception of some of the death novels, like in a little bit? Of death, like maybe Reaper Man or something. Yeah, oh, I, I think I think the yeah Reaper Man in particular is uh, uh, really all about that. I, I mean, this comes at it from, I suppose, a sort of other angle where death was kind of trust into being human and sort of had to take the ups and the downs, whereas the auditors like deliberately take mm. on that form and try to. Like, it's like they try to. Uh, understand the process of humanity in a very inhumane yeah. way, like that way, bit when they're in the art gallery and they're just like, like toward, uh, destroying the breaking down the pictures into their smaller and smaller atoms to try and understand like how art works. Mm. You know how like why yes. why it triggers feelings in people um, is great. And like obviously the sense that they're like completely overcome by 
by the flavor uh, I love of chocolate. Lady Lejeune is that line about like almost dying after she had a slice yeah. of dry toast. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I, I think some people have commented about like just a kind of sexist element to the fact that like like Lady Lejeune and uh, we start calling her Unity. Oh yes, the, um, I suppose that's what. The name she earns. Unity and Susan are the ones who have this real weakness towards chocolate. Like Lucy has a bite and doesn't. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of up and down on that. I, I, I would definitely like sympathise with that view if you're rather feeling like, like, oh, here we go again. Like another a kind of like a wink and a dig at, like you know, uh, like women are crazy for chocolate. But for me, it didn't jump. It didn't like rankle quite as much. Mainly, partly because. I was complaining earlier about like like Lutzi's sort of legendary qualities being you know like piled on a bit too much, but because he is set up like that sort of character, it kind of makes sense. And because he's also so down to earth in this very pointed way, for me it makes sense that he wouldn't react to it. And also the fact that all of the male auditors as well as the female ones in their human shapes are just as susceptible yeah, to like of course, yeah. you know being completely overcome by. T- but you know, as I said, like I, I could well understand why someone would be like a little annoyed mm. by. By that bit, oh, while we're on that, I do love the relationship between Unity and Susan is really good. I like, I, I love like Susan's kind of suspicions and almost like, like uh, sort of repulsed um, discomfort around an auditor. Like you know, this thing she has grown to hate is is very understandable, vividly depicted, but is I think is. A, uh, impressively uncomfortable position to put the reader in because I think by then most of us have like like unity and uh, we're on her side again there's that oh can't they just get along so there's something like very uncomfortable mm. about seeing Susan express such disgust for her and she's just so meek and uh, um, passive about you know about it and almost like like feels probably like she understands why Susan feels that way so she's almost feeling like she deserves it so it's it's an uncomfortable but understandable mm. experience, which um, yeah, which is excellent. And, and that conversation they have, like we were saying, we were kind of left a little unconvinced by the romance with, with Susan and Love Sang such time. I do like that conversation Susan has with Unity about it, where Unity just kind of like <laughs> still feeling her way around humanity, just ball facedly asks her, uh, you know, do you like him? That's and so right. On. Yeah, I really enjoy that part actually. Like just the the whole. Um, like Unity's complete lack of understanding it's again it's uh, it's just very very enjoyable like it's really fun reading and any interactions with Susan it's 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 a weird thing how like Susan is an enjoyable character to read but I feel like she shouldn't be you know because a lot of her character (laughs) is her knowledge that to put it quite bluntly that she knows she's better than most people so you you should she should come across as smug but I suppose the fact that she's so put upon in every novel she's in, like in every single novel, it's always like death is not forcing her, but like manipulating her in such a way that she has to do something that she doesn't want to do. So she is very put upon and like you find yourself sympathizing with her a lot when she just wants to live a normal life. And she has all these obstacles in the way, which include people who, from her point of view, are very, very stupid. So, um yeah, it's it's an it's an admirable feat that they managed to make Susan such a likable character when really she shouldn't be, <laughs> in, in all respects. Yeah. What well, What do you think? Uh, I I really like that. Um, Unity earns a soul. Like when she dies, death appears, mm. and there, there's an afterlife. Yeah. 
Like that's such a lovely idea, and and I like that idea in general. Of again, it comes back to that like of like living your life fulfillingly and, and, and how easy it is to waste it that like she's earned a soul and you get the feeling like none of the other auditors in human form have. But as much as I love the idea of her like her death by chocolate and, and I'm touched by her earning a soul, I, I'm kind of a little sorry about like that she's so resolute that she has to kill herself because she just can't cope with humanity. Like she keeps referring to herself as like, I'm completely insane. Like she's sort of self-diagnosed. And it's, I think at first, like when Susan hears this, she's, you know, put off, but like she's still quite suspicious of her. So she's like, oh, whatever this, you know, auditor is mad anyway. Um, as it goes on and as they get to know each other, I kind of regret that like Susan or someone else doesn't make more of a bigger effort to say like, no, just, you know, try, 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 try living for a while. Like now that the yeah, world's back to normal I... and all the other auditors are gone. Like, like that they, uh, on the one hand, I suppose it's very, Respectful that they just trust her decision on, on this in a way, you know. Um, and I mean, weirdly and poignantly, given Terry Pratchett's later investigations into uh, assisted dying, um, you know, I suppose it's it's an attitude where even if he wasn't aware of it at the time, he would probably share. Like she's kind of uh, maybe made made her decision. But but in another way, it feels. I, I don't know. It, it feels like like she's the worst possible person to judge how you know her own uh, her own humanity or her own ability to cope in society because she, she has such little experience. Yeah, I of found it. it very interesting because I saw that there was a very interesting parallel between her and Jeremy in that you know Jeremy is being described uh, like Igor describes him as very very mad, but realistically. Well, I think we've I think we've seen this before in another novel. I can't remember which one it is, but it's more like he's dangerously sane. Like you know, because re- uh, Igor has that moment where he says, "Wow, I've never seen somebody with a drawer labeled spoons that contains nothing but spoons." You know that whole thing—the idea that he's like so meticulous in how he organizes his life, which. And it is something that I think we all experience. Somebody who is so meticulous in the way they organize their life, they could be seen as insane simply because they're so organized. And I see a little bit of that in Lady Lejean, in that she's, you know, she's she's so aware that, like, you know, she, she's she's experiencing all these new functions in her body, these new experiences, and... She doesn't know how to deal with them. So there's this idea that she's just, I can't handle this. I must be insane. You know, like I, I am not a human being. I must be insane, which I think is a little bit regressive, to be honest with you. I think you're I would have been a lot happier if she had lived. It's like, I, this is going to paint me as a bit of a, I enjoy a good death in a book. Like I'm always like, yeah, that feels very satisfying, whatever. But this is one of the moments where I didn't think it, I didn't think it needed to happen. I feel like Unity could have lived and she would have been a more interesting character for it. Like, I feel like the reason that she might have died was, and this is, this is probably the most controversial statement I will say about Terry Pratchett's writing ever, because it kind of makes me paint him as a little bit of a villain. But I think the reason he felt she had to die was because she didn't have the love interest anymore. You know, Jeremy is kind of painted as he it's very much Lob Sang who lives and Jeremy is just kind of absorbed into Lob Sang, like when time becomes or Jeremy becomes time. So we don't really see any signs of Jeremy after that. And as a result of that, I feel like he thought that 
Unity had to die then because she didn't have that link, you know? Like, she had Susan, but I don't think that was seen as enough and therefore she had to die. I'm not really... I mean, the one thing I can say in respect to it is that I like the idea of death by chocolate as a pun, but everything else doesn't really hold up for me. I don't think it works. Yeah, I... I've often heard, and I'm, I'm sort of, I'm loath to give this too much credit because I, uh, credibility because I, I haven't read much about like Pratchett discussing his writing process, but I've, I've often heard people speculate that it sometimes feels like he comes up with an ending and like works backwards from there part of the way, uh, and, and and you know maybe this explains some of the really like rushed endings in the in the early books, but I feel as if like the idea of a kind of auditor you know being a human and then end up being incapable of being a human and killing themselves by like this ultimate sensual experience that you know humans enjoy is like something he came up with early on in the process and was just like aiming towards and was kind of set on I could see you know that. staying that course regardless of, of what else happened in the process of writing this character you know and it isn't like incredibly egregious like as I said I mean, from one, I, you, like, if you want to get philosophical about it, you can't make that assisted dying argument of, you know, like, well, like, if she feels this sort of, like, mental anguish brought on by her ability to, like, properly function as a human is overwhelming, it's, you know, it's her decision. Uh, but, yeah, as I said, for, for me, in another way, you can more and more feel as if, well, like, she's the last person who yeah. should be. You know, making this decision for herself, and it feels like he was just, you know, set on the the cosmic mm. vat of chocolate and was going to get there no matter what. Um, I mean, she's such a good character, uh, has a really enjoyable journey, has great interactions with Susan and with Jeremy. That I don't, you know, like I, as sad as I am that that happened, it doesn't mm. sort of like ruin the character or ruin the book for me because I'm I'm very glad yeah. we just got her in, you know, in I general. Mean, part of me thinks. Because of the way later novels go, I feel like that if she had survived, there would have been something... Like, Terry Pratchett might have felt something of a need to continue her story later, and I don't think that would have worked. Well, maybe, actually. That could have done. That could have worked. No, maybe that could have worked. It would be interesting to see her as a background character in the later, like, say, Morpork set books, where, like, obviously no one, none of the normal characters would know she's uh, an auditor come to life, mm. so she'd just be this weird, eccentric noble, you know? Like, you have those scenes of her trying and failing to, like, dress herself and put on makeup and things where she's, like, slathered on so much eyeliner <laughs> and eyeshadow that she looks like a panda, and, you know, she has this crazy hodgepodge of clothes. Uh, like, the idea of, uh, like, William DeWard or Vimes or, or Moist or something, just yeah. making reference to, like... Oh, that crazy. I'm going to call it. I'm not, that, <laughs> I'm not enthralled at all with the idea of her dying at the end. I do not think that could have happened. And I do agree with you. I could see that very much as being an ending that was worked backwards from, because I think it, it seems like it seems like a very poetic ending, but not to this story, <laughs> you know, because he wrote her so well that it shouldn't mm-hmm. have ended that way. So yeah, I could definitely see that as being the thought process. Um, yeah, that's that's my personal take on it. Um, we should probably come close to wrapping this up, I think, because we've we've been at this god nearly two hours now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just got a couple of small notes. We we talked about the the parallel with the the, the five horsemen and like like it pratches himself as rest of just being like he's kind of tapping into like band law yeah, of the yeah, Beatles yeah. with the idea that one who left for became famous. 
uh, they they they're you know a kind of incarnation or an interpretation of the biblical four horsemen and interestingly like i have heard some people although this might be kind of linguistic pedants debating that there are actually five horsemen in the book of revelation in the bible because the um they're actually introduced as a conquest war famine and death mm. i don't know when and where conquest was replaced with, with pestilence but when it, when it, they're introducing um I'm, I'm actually recording this from a room in a uh, place that used to be like a, a seminary so there's a couple of there tends to be a couple of bibles around <laughs> unfortunately there isn't one in a room for me to consult at the moment but in any case the line about death says um and i looked and i saw a pale horse and death rode out, and Hades followed with him. So I remember some point I was like, well, like Hades is riding out with death, so he's the fifth horseman. And then even the, the use of Hades, which is like the Greek god of the underworld in the Christian Bible, um, just the King James translation I'm, I'm quoting from, is an odd one, but it's like it's um, a translation from, I think, a, a Hebrew word meaning like, uh, and I'll probably mispronounce this, like Sheol or Sheol, and, 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 which means the grave or... Like it could it could mean anything between like mm. just like the grave as in you know literally wh- where you die, but also the the underworld or like what what's after death in itself. Um, mm. So yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of uh, well, like the four horsemen have passed into popular lore now as war, famine, pestilence, and death. Uh, there are kind of a, a lot of uh, I suppose like debates over these figures and you see it cropping up a lot when you have kind of I suppose pe- uh, certain like like biblical literalists and um, uh, what do they call like uh, dispensational millennialists who argue for this like really literal interpretation of the book of Revelation that isn't literal at all because it's you know they're like no this isn't just talking about suffering and the end of the world there will literally be four horsemen <laughs> so you say to them oh so there will literally be four guys on horses killing everyone they're like no the four horsemen will be like the leaders of the US and the <laughs> Russia and China yeah. and well, that's well, not literal that isn't very literal <laughs> yeah I know <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like you know the, the kind of yeah, sort of more pedantic response to them is try to, I suppose, fight them on their own, like, turf of biblical literalism and say, well, they're actually five horsemen. Yeah. Do you know what I did very much enjoy, actually? Like, there's lots of references to, like, kung fu movies in this, which are all fine. But specifically what I particularly enjoyed was uh, when Lucy and Lobsang go to visit Q who uh, equips them oh, with yeah, there. Sure. so Q being like a reference to actual Q from James Bond movies and they you know they go through all the little gadgets that like uh, have hidden uh, abilities and uh, you know just Lucy touching things that he shouldn't I thought that was like it's just a little thing but it's possibly my favorite reference throughout the entire book like and I, di- I remember I didn't pick up it up the first time because before the first time I read this I don't think I'd ever seen a James Bond movie so it obviously went over my head completely but now I have seen literally all of them um so yeah now it's very very much obvious um I'm trying to think is there any other little bits and pieces that I enjoyed there's uh, the reference yeah, to the start with the, uh, the idea of like telling it from a, the story from a different perspective. Which is very good, actually. I like that a lot because, and it's especially good be- since because the movie of Titanic has come out. So obviously, like you know, this would be. I think this was about three or four years after Titanic the movie came out, and 
obviously, after that movie was released, all anybody can think of when they think of Titanic is, oh God, the point of view of the passengers and how traumatic it was and all that sort of thing. It's almost like, I think it's almost at this point, it's practically a cultural milestone that it's very hard to imagine the Titanic itself before that movie. So you can't imagine it just as some shipwreck out at sea. Like you don't think of it in terms of like crashing into an iceberg and like when you think of the Titanic, I think all you can do is think about like, oh, all those passengers, they were all drowning. It was terrible. And that soundtrack and, you know, Jack, I've got room for you. You know, it's like, you know, it's interesting how these cultural markings, they're like signposts within history for how we remember yeah, well, things. Yeah, well, claims you know? the, the Castagnacordia, the Italian cruise ship sank a few years ago. Someone, I think some newscaster described it as being like a real life, real life Titanic, which... <laughs> you know, but, but shows how, how these things oh. kind of uh, that it's it goes back to moving pictures and that postmodern blurring between reality and representation. You know that like when <laughs> the Ankh-Morpork that they build for the film is realer than the real Ankh-Morpork in that way. Like the mm. James Cameron's <laughs> film of Titanic has become like realer than the historical events that led to this slider yeah. sinking in the Atlantic Ocean in whatever it was, 1912. That, that's just cringeworthy though it's, it's funny how like this book it kind of champions like the intelligence the phil- philosophical intelligence of like you know regular people with uh you know the the way of mrs mm-hmm. cosmopolis like i i think that's like a very powerful message that like um terry patchett gets across like the fact that this woman is revered and we never meet her which i think is very important like uh she's just this woman who has these incredibly you know, uh, profound yeah, statements shows that we too, use in everyday it, life. It sort of ties back into that idea of like living life fulfillingly and how easy it is to waste time in life in that Lucy can find wisdom from this very ordinary sort of woman, you know, and maybe it kind of like indirectly points to all of the wisdom we're ignoring in our everyday lives by imagining that that thing is only accessible in a mysterious monastery that, you know, only heroes and ninjas and monks get to visit, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, ah, it's good, though. Like, um, I do enjoy that part. I think that's probably everything that I have, if I'm being honest. I'm just going to see, is there anything else in my notes to jump out? Do you know what I did like, actually? Um, that little reference at the start where there was this one moment in history where Great Hatoon turned around and snapped at a meteorite that was coming towards us. And, uh, and like, nobody knows why he did that. And, like, it's, I, I, I mean, like, I'll, I'm assuming it's a reference to, like, you know, the asteroid coming in that supposedly killed all the dinosaurs and all. But, like, it's interesting that, like, this is referencing a moment in alleged history, you know, which is kind of... Because, like, you, you know, we all know theory from that, like, the 1980 to Doctor Who serial Airchuck that what really killed the dinosaurs was a time-traveling spaceship crashing into Earth. Oh, well, I didn't know that. No, I don't watch we, Doctor we all Who, know so students. clearly it's we pretty, have to... I mean... No, 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 we experience <laughs> history differently, okay? You're Jeremy Clarkson, I'm Bob <laughs> Sanglud, okay? So we have very different views on, like, how exactly, like, the dinosaurs were actually killed. Uh, but it's just cool. It's a, it's, an, it's a nice little, like... It's very subtle foreshadowing bit that I think if you are reading this 
And if you like weren't really thinking, you're like, oh, that's a cool little reference to the asteroid that killed dinosaurs. And then you have to kind of stop to think like, no, that's just something that's like, you know, very popular in like, you know, modern cultures. Like, oh, it was an asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. This is how we remember. Some people remember it. It's not like fact at all. So like, yeah, it's it's an interesting it also there. Plus the greater tune is the true hero of the Discworld series, saving everyone's life. Yeah, always. He always is. Always. Yeah, I think that's about the the guts of it. Like, I had a little bit there on signs and simulations and how we, like, you know, view things, but I think we've already covered the majority of how we view the world and that sort of thing. I'm not sure if uh, our old friend Baudrillard would have much <laughs> to contribute. Well, he probably would, but we won't go into it. We're, we're pretty much done on that whole thing. Uh, so, um, okay. I well, before now... we progress the ranking, we've got one question from Twitter. This is Stephen oh. at L Calablaster, um, who I believe has, has gotten in touch with us before under uh, other Steve and their Steve-related monikers. And he just says, that book is amazing. I don't have any clever questions or comments right now, but I just want to say that the chaos reveal was hilarious to me. Incidentally, have you heard the, the story Terry Pratchett said that he came up with the idea of Ronnie Soak and then he, he only realized when he saw yeah. backwards that Soak is chaos and he attributes to this yeah, yeah, uh, narrativia, the, go- the goddess of storytelling. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that and I love that. I think that's fantastic. Like, I'm part of me wonders if it's actually true, but like, I feel like it probably is. Like, you know, <laughs> Ronnie Soak does sound like such a great milkman name. So, I'm like, yeah, I sorry, I'm going to jump off this one just to talk about one more thing, which is that, uh, with the, the uh, Good Omens TV adaptation coming out soon. Have you read Good Omens? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Years so, ago. You so know, there's like Four Horsemen well, yeah, that just... as well. Um, and you have mm. them, but then they, they get those biker kind of lackeys that follow them, and they're all trying to come up with their own, like, yes. what else to, you know, what you've got, like, death, famine, pollution in that case, and war. And they're like, oh, uh, coming up with stuff like, what is it, like, really tick people or. Uh, ATM queues or, or something like they have like like all these mundane little annoyances that are supposedly legal. I did the kind of thought process when Lucy is trying to guess who like Ronnie Soak is is sort of you know similar in that regard. Like thinking, okay, so there's a fifth horse of the apocalypse. Like what what would be up there with debt, war, famine, and pestilence? You know. Um, <laughs> also, there, there's some parallels there. Like when debt is trying to put the band back together. He um, he kind of attributes all the three others' reluctance in the fact that they were made by humanity, like war, pestilence, and and famine, and then they're more human than mm. he is. And again, there's kind of like ironic, you know, undercutting of death, where he's like, I, I remember you describing his uh, relationship with emotions as being like like an addict, where he's like, I can give up anytime I want. Um, and we, we sort of have it here where he's like, well, thank goodness I haven't changed. And of course, you know, we as the readers know he has. Yeah. Uh, but like he and Chaos are the more primordial horsemen that go beyond humanity. And I, I, mm. there's some point in Good Omens where one of the other horsemen is thinking that about death. Like they're thinking we're all made by humans and one day we'll be gone. But like he's been there before and he'll be there forever and he's sort of more mysterious than the rest of them uh, I can't remember who are playing them in the uh, upcoming Good Omens TV adaptation but I uh, listened to a radio 
No, no, Michael, Michael Sheen, Sheen, David Tennant, they're playing um, Aziraphale and Crowley. I don't know who are playing the Horsemen. Oh, sorry. So I listened to a radio adaptation All right. where I can't remember who War was voiced by, but uh, Famine was Patterson Joseph, uh, Pollution was Harry Lloyd, um, aka Viserys Targaryen, and oh, wow. uh, uh, then Death was um, Jim Bishop Brennan Norton. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and he was oh, he wow. was amazing at it. I, al- I always imagine someone. I would always imagine someone like War to be brought. Well, it's, it's a woman in Good Omens, like, but I could definitely like see. Someone. Yeah, if you've done a Tifa Time adaptation, oh, I could definitely right. see Brian Blessed. <laughs> Brian Blessed would make a great War. <laughs> For years, I thought he was actually Gimli in Lord of the Rings. You know, because <laughs> just I think like he would make a great. Sorry, war. Well, all of this is diverted us from Stephen's um, uh, comment, which he said that the chaos reveal was hilarious. The chocolate pool makes me cry. Um, so he presumably shares our feelings on the mm. sadness of seeing unity pass on. And lastly, yeah. he says, "Do you agree with the theory that this happens during Nightwatch? Uh, the events of this book happens while Nightwatch is going on. Um, possibly. I mean, you, you have well, the. Uh, I mean, the thunderstorm. Well, Nightwatch is a time travel book, so like. Tech, I mean, it can't all take place during Nightwatch because some of that's in the future, or some of that's in the present, some of that's very much in the past. So time is very relative, you know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I I'll mean, see when we get to Nightwatch, how... but like, I think they're in the process of putting time back together when, when Vimes meets the History Monks. And that's sort of why they have to slot him oh, up yeah. and slot him into Keel's role and they can't send him back home immediately. And there's also the fact that, like, the auditors summon a thunderstorm to trigger the lightning bolt that will activate the clock and Vimes initially gets, uh, you know, um, time travels during a thunderstorm over the university. So, I mean, yeah, it would, it would make as, as much sense as anything and kind of it, it is sort of funny that um, the, given that this book is sort of a job at cleaning up the Discworld timeline, it adds this other wrinkle or complication where, like, I believe our next one after this is The Last Hero some of which takes place in Agmorepork, but presumably Nightwatch chronologically, if that theory is true, happens before The Last Hero. And I don't just mean the events in the past of Nightwatch, but the events in the present because it's happening during Thief of Time. So it's like that, that theory is eminently plausible, but it is sort of ironic to me that the book he wrote to partly clean up the Discworld chronology ends up involving this like really complicated rejigging of the chronology of the next few books. Yeah, you could even say that Nightwatch takes place not during this book, but before this book when the first clock was made. That could potentially be the case as well. Yeah, you know, there's nothing to say yeah, that it maybe. wasn't. So, because like it, it is literally just fixing time, so it could happen anytime. Is the thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's very plausible. Um, obviously, the loot sea that we see in Nightwatch isn't the same loot sea that we're seeing in this one. It's probably considerably after those events but those events could be taking place simultaneously to this and you know it's just a much a future lucy who's taking care mm. of it so who's to say i mean it's definitely plausible and i have no reason to see why it wouldn't be so we'll probably have to read nightwatch to get a better idea of it because i it's been an equally long time since i've read that yeah one, we're only so. a, a couple off yeah we got, who's to say like- Two or three books between this and Nightwatch. Yeah. Three. Anyway, we'll get to get to ranking this fella. Um. Yes, let's do that. And this is going to be an interesting one because almost every long time uh, has been, 
you know, very difficult. It's always been very high up, like trumping the last one. Whereas this is one of the ones that I feel like is going to be quite low down, in my opinion. Not very low down, yeah, but I certainly Twitter, lower than a lot uh, of recent books that uh, we've yeah, done. A week or so ago, this was the Doctor Whoiest of the of the Discworld books. There's always been a lot of jokes. Like, there's a significant crossover between Doctor Who fans and Discworld fans, not least uh, Ben McKenzie, who hosts a, our um, Pratchett podcast, Piers Pratchett. Um, but there's, I've had a lot of jokes of comparing death to the Doctor that they both have, they both travel in time and space. They're immortal. They both have granddaughters called Susan. <laughs> but uh, I didn't know that. But yeah, that yeah, the, the, the first Doctor's uh, his granddaughter Susan, who he, he traveled with. But um, this one, like, like the the auditors feel like Daleks, but without, uh, you know, instead of death rays, they've got clipboards and like, um, yeah. and the stakes <laughs> of this being so apocalyptic and having to do with stopping time feel very uh, Doctor Who like. But I I, mm. I feel having said that and saying this is someone who's a huge Doctor Who fan, this all, like a lot of this book's ups and downs are kind of related to the ups and downs of elements of Doctor Who. Like, uh, I I said death is often the parallel people draw with the Doctor, but Lutzi sort of is here in that he's this kind of figure who's like really legendary, but is sort of unorthodox and almost disappointing to the people who meet him, expecting him to live up to the legend. And like for me, the, my annoyances with some of the way he's depicted and particularly the way he's kind of built up and praised, it feels a lot like a... Like, some of the failings of the the revived um, era Doctor Who, particularly around like the, the Stephen Moffat era of like where they like heap all this kind of mystery and you know um, uh, esteem on a Doctor, like you're forever being reminded how great and how mysterious he was, and you know a couple of plots would just resolve themselves basically by him going up and telling the villain who he is, and they'd run off in fear and stuff like that. Uh, and and even there's there's a thing in like where like like um, River Song, a character who's kind of like romantically involved with the Doctor in a very unorthodox way that also echoes the romance of this book, says, talks about like rule one, the Doctor lies. And that remark always annoyed me then when I was watching it because I was like, rule one of what? Of like the rules of the Doctor? Of like the rules of time that they occasionally like vaguely refer to in the show? So like, there, you know, there's, there's those elements of like that, uh, you know, um, of the things that I dislike about certain Doctor Who episodes that I see coming through here. But there's also, like, elements that I really like. Like, I think this one, there's something really cool about the fact that the big climax with the time stopping and the clock being activated happens, like, about two thirds of the way through the book, and the last third is is, is a climax. And it kind of reminds me of the uh, two-parter uh, Matt Smith here, Doctor Who, the Pandora opens and slash the Big Bang, where... The, the whole thing is the whole like uh, I suppose like quest of the protagonist is to stop them villains opening this thing called the Pandorica that's going to blow up the universe and then at the end of the first episode they end up opening it sealing the doctor within it and blowing up the universe and remaking this much smaller universe so the whole second episode feels like this kind of weird uh pulling the rug out from under the viewer as to what the stakes are. Like, you know, you kind of think, oh, mm. like it's already happened. What, what, what can they do now? What are they going to do? It turned back and there's a lot of, like, just sort of chaos and running around. It also kind of reminds me of the um, Avengers Endgame, which well, I'm sure we're past a moratorium on spoilers on that one, but I'll try not to spoil too much. But basically how, like, the first film 
and the first the Avengers Infinity War ends at a point where you think, oh, this is what they're trying to stop the villain from doing, and then he seems to accomplish that, and it leaves the whole second part of the film as a part that in kind of, uh, I suppose, the conventional action, speculative fiction drama, you would think either wouldn't happen or would only happen in a few moments at the end of a book or film or, yeah. or show or whatever. Um, it, rem- it reminds me a lot of um, <laughs> this uh, of Final Fantasy. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, 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 like how so like at the about halfway, well, a little later than the halfway point of that, like basically what doesn't traditionally happen in video games is the villain wins. He manages to destroy the world and you spend the last, like maybe last third of the entire game, like trying to gather up people and take like one last stand and try to save the remnants of this world that is essentially mm. destroyed. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, um, but like, whereas, whereas in that one example, like it is trying to save a world that is destroyed and isn't going to change, but in the likes of um, you know Avengers or in this or I don't know about the Doctor Who episode, it's kind of uh, you know trying to re-engineer reality or time so that like you can basically make it so that it didn't happen or something like that. So uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one that like I, I I do like it. I like the structure of it. It's just it's just the characters within it that kind of irk me like more than anything. Yeah, else. yeah. So With regard to the structure, I think that. Uh, Doctor Who Two Predator is the clearest parallel there because that also ends with spoilers for a whatever ten year old and um, uh, no eight year old show at this uh, episode. At this one it ends with them kind of setting things back to normal, and there's a lot of Doctor mm. Who finales around that time that you know have a kind of similar sort of reset button ending that I find really unsatisfying and underwritten. And this particular uh, the, the two-parter end to like season five of the Revival season I think is like one of the better examples where they reverse things but they do it in such a way where it's been set up and it feels satisfying and there's still a sense of stakes and that's also true of Teeth of Time I think in fairness like for a book that features sort of like time being stopped and the world seemingly ending for a while that they reverse it and get it back to normal mm. it does feel satisfying it makes sense it doesn't feel like a deus ex machina or a kind of unsatisfying reset button as you said it's more the character's uh, that let it down on the, the kind of structure mm. and the drama and so on. So in terms of the list... Sorry, go on. Sorry, just to be... And in fairness to the actual plot, it isn't a case of like something actually happens and then they try to stop it from... like They try to retcon it and prevent it from happening. It's more a case of something happens, time is frozen in that moment. So technically they are in the exact tiny moment that it happens and then they have to find a way to fix it in a somewhat limited slash borrowed time which is perceived differently by all the characters within that moment in time which in itself is very very interesting but as you said it's just got flat boring as fuck characters somewhere in there so um so yeah looking at the list now um, if you don't mind i'm going to make yeah go on and one thing I'm going to say about this, I'm just looking at it now, and the only definitive thing I have to say on it, and maybe you'll fight me on this, I don't know, but one, looking at it, the one book that I say it has to go below is Moving Pictures. Like, I can kind of see it potentially anywhere around that area, but Moving Pictures is just one that's like, no, definitely not. Weird Sisters, I'd argue, like, this is better, no, this isn't as good as Weird Sisters, but anything after that. Okay, like, yeah. Moving Pictures, I was, my, my point of comparison was, the other death ones and I thought like we got Hogfather at number four and I was like oh, okay it's not you know not better than Hogfather and most of the books below Hogfather here I put it below as well and then I was looking at Mort and Reaper Man which are at 10 or 12 and 
I probably put it below Mort, but I hadn't. I hadn't. Um, it, it felt as strongly as you were putting it below moving pictures of fifteen. But to be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not too pushed on. I'd be happy to slot it in between moving pictures and Weird Sisters at the new number sixteen. Um, I like mm. looking at it initially. I would have had it at like a little higher, like maybe below Reaper Man or just below Witch Broad. But uh, like, a, this, this isn't a hill I'm going to die on. The issue, I think, is the fact that I think we, we both agree, like, it's got some quite poorly written characters here. I mean, not I say poorly, like, I mean, within the grand spectrum of, you know, the grand roster of Terry Pratchett characters that we have. Like, I mean, if, you know, if you were comparing this to all books, it's really, really high up. But uh, moving pictures, like, I still remember how much that blew me away. Like, I, that so, like, and this did not blow me away. Like, it's, I remember not being that pushed on Thief of Time and I fully satisfied my initial reaction to that. I was like, yeah, I was right to think that. Um, I, If I was to personally go for it, see, Weird Sisters is the stickler for me. I personally enjoy it a lot, but I know it has flaws. And it's a case of, whereas this one has more interesting themes and a very exciting plot, Weird Sisters has much more engaging characters for me. So it's kind of 50-50 on that. If you feel strongly one way or the other, like I wouldn't really mind, but um, I'd put it definitely above Jingo, definitely below Moving Pictures. It's just Weird Sisters that is kind of the stickler for me. Like I'm always like the witches books are always have a soft spot for because they have such good characters and say what you want about the plots. Like even the likes of Witches Abroad, which has like a very troubling plot, it's still such a good romp that you're just kind of like, whatever. Um, yeah. Definitely below moving pictures. Um, for me personally, I think I I would put this below Weird Sisters simply because Weird Sisters is such a good read. I, I like I'll always come back to it again and again and say like, sure it has problems, but it's fun. It's got a satisfying plot. It's got good characters. It doesn't punch above its belt, which this one I think does a little bit. So that's my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I said I'd certainly have it above Jingo because I think Jingo is much messier and like you know less ambitious book. And otherwise, I, I'm happy uh, putting it below Weird Sisters because I've always felt sort of bad that Weird Sisters is that low in the first okay. place. I think it's I, I think it's is really good, particularly considering it's the first witch one. Like often those like first forays into his subgenres, he's still figuring out what he wants to do with it. And I, I think Weird Sisters is really solid in that regard this this might yeah i don't know i, I think many people are going to just going to be one of our more contentious rankings I, I remember i was on the discworld reddit and there was a fella there whose handle escapes me but he said he had put together i say a fella it might, it might have been a woman too that's my bias talking um this person said that they had put together mm-hmm. like a kind of uh, master list based on getting people to list out their like f- top five or top ten discworld ones and then combining them to see you know what was kind of overall were the most popular ones and i think teeth of time was at about like two or three in uh in this overall list so we're we're very much going against the grain in that regard but you know i'm 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 happy to go against the grain uh there's nothing as prochettian as going against the grain yeah i mean like i think the main argument people will have is that it's got such heavy themes but because it's just play, playing around in those themes that I don't think it has anything hugely substantial to say. I mean, you know, it's it's good. The way that it, like these themes are portrayed, like the way that we look at history, reality, being human, 
it's fine. It's just it's wrapped around in a story with fairly forgettable characters, which I think is a fairly big flaw in a lot in many novels. So. Yeah, I have no issues whatsoever putting it below Wind Sisters. Yeah, so we'll leave it there. Um, Thief of Time, our new number 17, below Weird Sisters and above Jingo. I want to thank everybody for listening in on our Little Wee podcast. Uh, please give us a like on SoundCloud if you can. Um, send us any messages on Facebook, Twitter, anything like that. We are happy to hear any kind of feedback and any questions you might have for us, um, we will try our best to address them in our next podcast. The next one of which we will be recording or we will be reading The Last Hero, which is an illustrated Terry Pratchett novel. And I think the first one that we've approached so far. So that'll be a very interesting one. So, um, Colm, I we will see I'll see you again next time. And thank you very much for listening. Yeah.